0: Hello, and welcome back to another edition of Valar Iridis for the World of Ice and Fire, where we hone in on the world-building, the rich setting in which these characters we love exist. George R. R. Martin's put in an awful lot of effort into his world, and so shall we. He wanted us all to have fun with it, and so we shall. One way that a person enjoys what they're doing is to accompany that activity with a tasty beverage. Sean, what is your tasty beverage today?
1: This, if I had planned better, I would have had some kind of green mix. (laughs) Some sort of swamp drink. (laughs) Yeah. This might still qualify. This is a mango protein naked drink with strawberry, kiwi, sparkling ice, and watermelon. Red Bull. Oh. Might be watermelon something Red Bull. Yeah, anyway, anyway, it's pure deliciousness is what it is.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Well, a shout out to goodqueenally.tumblr.com. Nina's notes are invaluable as always. She informed me right before we started, she gave me a funny anecdote about how Disney is involved with wetlands and how protected wetlands are something we wanted to talk about briefly today because we're talking about swamps. <laughs> it's so funny. She said they just sometimes they just buy more land. Just to keep in balance with the ratio they're allowed to have by law, and yeah, who among us doesn't just buy more land when our ratios are off? <laughs> everybody, everybody, we all we all know that pain, right? You got your wetlands out of balance with your dry land. You got to buy a few hundred more acres just to just to stay in in code. We've all been there, yeah, we've all been. And <laughs> look at my cool shirt, everybody. Sean and I are particularly colorful today. We're noticing how like I've got the Dornish Summer Sea background here with with my blue shirt, and Sean's got these movie posters with some red, and his red shirt We're very colorful. Well, we're not green, unfortunately. We got the wrong colors, <laughs> but, <laughs> but they are very colorful. You
2: know. Now, Z's shirt says, good said on it, on the front, and on the back, it says, well, point. And uh, you can get them at our uh, website or at historyofwesteroast.threadless.com.
1: Right you can't, front, it looks like you can't twist aid. your body around like an owl. I'm
0: afraid Not. I'm. I'm not quite that <laughs> flexible. But yeah. But yeah. It looks like it looks like it says "goo aid" with the microphone blocking it. <clears throat> everybody need, Everybody knows "goo" needs aid.
2: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals.
0: Okay. Well, we've got a lot of fun stuff to talk about. As usual, we've got a nice mix of in-world and a few real-world things to mix into it. Lots of mixing. Our trivia question to start off today is, when Rob's army arrives at Moat Kalen in A Game of Thrones, he takes residence for the night at the largest of the three towers, the Gatehouse Tower. So it's a double question. Who takes the children's tower and who takes the drunkard's tower? But give yourself an extra pat on the back if you can specify which lord took which. But if you can just name the two lords that took the two towers, you've done your job as a trivia question answerer. Let's get to it. The Krenigman and the Neck are in every book. There's a lot of chapters that take place there, or at least that reference it. Uh, as we just said, Rob's army passing through there, Catlin's POV, is is the one for those sends a letter ahead to Howland remember Ned informs them to tell Howland Reed to get some archers ready and do all the stuff get the army ready before things get worse and then things get much worse but that's another story Ned didn't have a chapter passing through the neck which I think is interesting because maybe it would have been too hard for George to avoid him thinking about Howland Reed and that would be like well this isn't where this isn't when I want to reveal that yet (laughs) He already had his chapter in the Rolling Hills with Robert when they <laughs> go charging <laughs> over the dead, over the barrows, over the graveyards after they had just visited the crypt. So it's very graveyard <laughs> oriented early on there for those guys. But we also have Theon breaking the siege for Ramsey, luring those ironborn out to get flayed. And we get a lot of moments in there where he takes stock of what the place looks like and how decrepit and, and mysterious and creepy it is. Victarian has memories of the place, too. He swore revenge against the bog devils. He's like, I had to wear my chainmail every night. I had to sleep in my armor because I didn't want
1: to get shot by a poisoned arrow. <laughs> I was like, yeah. <laughs> I want to ask a question. Is yeah, these, go for it. Who has charge of Mo What What lord seats it? Who mans the no one. walls? Yeah, it's,
0: it's a ruin. It's just a ruin. They just basically, what they do is they'll... It's not functional as a seat for living, really, because it's just someone would have to spend a lot of money to put restore it. And I guess no one's been willing to do that. But it's it's like a fort that everybody rushes to to guard if if need be. But it, there hasn't been a need in many, many hundreds of years. There hadn't been an Andal attempt to conquer through the neck. And I don't know when the last time was, to be honest. We have anecdotes of Andal kings trying to invade the north, but we don't actually know when the last attempt was. Obviously, it wasn't during the, the reign of the Targaryen. No one tried to invade north then. Even the tar- even the Starks surrendered to the dragons before they even went there. And they marched through the Neck to meet them in the Riverlands anyway. So they weren't even in the north. So
1: Seems like it would be worth manning it. It seems like even if just a superficial sor- uh, force, just like with messengers, j- even if just like a dozen people, just enough to have a night and day shift and someone to ride off on horseback to say, hey, send more reinforcements. bad guys are coming or something. I don't well, know. Well, the
0: thing is, the, the neck is so long and it's the Kalen's at the top of it that if an enemy started to move through the neck, you would know well before they got to Kalen. But I can still see your point, though. I see your point, like maybe yeah. some dudes there to keep a watch. Maybe
1: that's the role of the craning men in part. You know,
0: Absolutely. In uh, fact, well, I may as well say this now. There's an anecdote later in this episode where Rob tells Lord Jason Mouser to send ships into the neck to, to Greywater Watch. And he's like, I don't know where that is. <laughs> and he's like, don't worry about it. Just go and they'll find you. Once you're there, they will be like, oh, there they are. Yeah, they know their home they territory. They have patrols They're and watching. Yeah.
1: And this doesn't seem like a very northernly way, much less Kranigman way, but it seems like it could be a key economic point, like the Twins. It seems like they could just set up if they did man that and just some with some modest fortifications to its current state, start charging a toll. Uh, like maybe that's against yeah. the law. Maybe the King's Road can't be told. That's not you know, a bad idea. A if, it, but... if
2: someone else in the chat, Christina K, brought that same thing up, jinxed with you about, <laughs> yeah, why wouldn't someone just set up there even part-time just to collect the toll, just make some money? Maybe thought of as the troll under the bridge. <laughs> troll <toll. Yeah.
1: laughs> maybe it's thought of as dishonorable in the north to do something like that, and though. and maybe it's just a law against tolling the king's road. I, yeah. Those are the- yeah,
2: they might have just been like, oh, that's that's basically just being like a bandit saying, yeah, you, but if you, you want to pass, you got to pay me, even though this isn't really my castle. I don't live here most of the time. Yeah. yeah.
1: If
0: they, the thing is, if they were to take care of it, like if they were to use that money to make the region nicer, then people would might be okay with it. That's a, yeah. this is. Yeah. There's enough. There's a. This is. This is. I'll, I'll give a, a nod to my second favorite series, The Witcher, where there's a, a case where there's a troll on a bridge, and Geralt's like, "Y'all want me to kill that troll?" And they're like, "No." He's a jerk, but that bridge is in great shape because of him. <laughs> he charges a toll, but it's a modest fee and it's worth it. He keeps it in repair. If it weren't for him, that bridge would fall apart. And he's, oh, all right, good deal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See you later. <laughs> you know? There's a way to make it work. Like the the phrase charge a lot, apparently to cross. Well, especially when it's Rob, you're like, you have to marry my daughter to cross. <laughs> of course, that's a whole army. Yeah, He crossing. doesn't have
1: a standard fee. He adjusts his fee based on demand of yeah. what or who's coming through or whatever. Yeah, that's
0: a real toll collector. <laughs> 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 and, and it's interesting that you bring them up because the phrase are probably the house that hates the Kranigmen the most. <laughs> well, they're, they're right next to them and they have all these weird beliefs about them. We've got some quotes from the, from the Walders that, talking about all the weird things they believe about the Kranigmen that mostly aren't true, but maybe a few of them are. But yeah, there's a lot there. It's, there's a lot to say about this place. We're, we'll start with the geography. Then we'll, we'll talk about some florin fauna, a little mysticism, the idea of floating castles. We've got section on real crannogs, what that actually means in the real world. And as with many regions in Westeros, the terrain and location, especially relative to other regions and other related topographical concerns, is both basic and crucial to understanding the people who live there, their place in Westeros and their role in the story, which is something we always like to keep a focus on as we're, when we're focused on the world building is how the world building supports their role in the story or enhances it or both. So let's take a quick look at the map. If you're listening on podcast, take a look later or pause it and take a look at the map if you can. If you're looking at the video, take a look at the screen. Shea's putting it up. Note to the west, there's like a jut there. That's Blazewater Bay that penetrates sort of deep into the neck there where you can see where it's the narrowest. The neck really is kind of like a neck there, isn't it? It's an apt name. It's a choke point, which is choking is of course a Neck related it's literally concept. a neck
2: with an Adam's apple,
0: <laughs> yeah, and you can kind of see that hag's face if you've ever noticed there's like a hag's face looking west is her neck as well, like her lower jaw is Flint's finger, her eye is Torin's square. And I don't think speaking of speaking of Flint's finger, I don't think it's swampy. I think the swamp is more to the narrow side there, but I think a lot of that is swampland over there. It's not exactly clear <laughs> where the domain of the kranigman ends to the west, but it's not the entire bit to Flynn's finger there. So regardless, whatever is and isn't technically the neck, we're focused on the swampy parts that are filled with Kranigman. The swamp actually goes all the way from the Northern Riverlands from a place called Hagsmire. that's going to come up several times today, all the way up to Moat Kalen. So that's, again, Sean, so that's part of what we're saying there. This, it's, If an army starts marching from Hagsmire north of the Twins, to Moat Kalen, it's going to take them a while cuz they have to march like single not single file but close to single file and it's slow going. Sansa later we have a quote where Sansa thinks it took them 12 days to get through and that's not an army. That's just their their party traveling south to go to King's Landing. 12 days isn't that long though for an army for to getting for getting yeah. the news out and for
1: It might take 12 days to get forces to Mo Kalen. you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, you're right. You're right. So. Yeah. so let's have our first quote It was the north and the north alone that was able to keep the Andals at bay, thanks to the impenetrable swamps of the Neck and the ancient keep of Moat Kaelin. The number of Andal armies that were destroyed in the Neck cannot be easily reckoned, and so the kings of winter preserved their independent rule for many centuries to come.
0: So there's a causeway leading up to Moat Kaelin and throughout the Neck. The causeway is an artificial road, basically, where you have to add to the road to to strengthen it because otherwise it's too soft or too muddy. So that's a common enough thing in a circumstance like this. But we must keep in mind that the King's Road, which does run through the neck all the way to the wall, all the way to King's Landing and then south, wasn't there during any of these Andal invasions. It's relatively new. It was only built 250 years ago-ish. Well, that's probably about when it started. It took a long time to finish. So armies had an even harder time back then. They were actually just marching through just paths, whatever, wherever people walked. And they wouldn't have known those ways very well. Think about how many real world armies got royally screwed, if not annihilated, by going the wrong way or by having a guide lead them the wrong way intentionally. There's been a few cases of that where an entire army was led astray by one clever, brave guide that was like, I'll tell you how to get there. And they lead them to a place where they're screwed. And then the guide runs away. (laughs) There's this like (laughs) 10,000 men in the middle of a salt (laughs) flat. Where do we go now? (laughs) Like we've seen in the deserts of Dorne, armies just vanishing. I imagine there's been some armies that have vanished in the Neck as well. Maybe more one by one than just all at once, but still, it's another example of a place that the terrain really defines the place, and the people are very defined by that in turn. Also, by the way, during the time of Jaehaerys and Alsan, that's something we'll, we'll examine more in detail later, new orchards were planted all the way into the Neck. So you wonder, when we're talking about flora and fauna there, I wonder if nowadays there's more fruit, more food in general than there used to be, and how possible that is for some places. So yeah, as it says, the Neck is a key reason why the North has cultural separation from the rest of the realm. Without that vast swampland, the North probably would have been overrun by the Andals. It sounds like they were very determined. And that would, of course, made the realm very different in the long term. So it's really a case of geography laying down the law in us in a way. What does this say to you, Sean? What's your experience maybe in real life of thinking about swamps and, and or extreme terrain and how that can really create these kind of separations between people?
1: The the Army has a training center in Fort Polk, Louisiana, hmm. which is basically a swamp. And different units go there to train. It's, it's something that they have like the, they have like soldiers that are stationed there that are modeled after other mar- armies around the world especially armies, it would be like in a a swampy environment. And so that other units can come to train there against, their training as though they're training against that other enemy Mm. in that terrain, et cetera. Ah. So I went down a few times when I was in the army and it sucks in a swamp. Like Humvees (laughs) get stuck in the mud. It's rainy. It could be like, sometimes it's in the summer, it can be hot and miserable and there's mosquitoes, but in the winter, it's, Cold and rainy, and uh, <laughs> sounds <there's> great. <laughs> freaking ants that'll bite you, and like it's everything gets muddy and wet, and the vehicles get stuck. And I mean, modern armies have to practice and train and have the right equipment for this. Maybe the environment is cool enough in the neck that malaria or some similar disease. I don't, I don't remember any mention of that. So maybe it's cool enough. You don't have that type of concern, but maybe it is. Maybe it's not realized or talked about, but. Maybe the Krennic may have developed an immunity to, or understand they need to be aware of certain bugs or whatever. But yeah, I mean
0: it's it's kind of like the the Amazon or some of these j- deep, vast jungles where there's just so many plants and and things that people haven't even discovered in modern times that maybe ancient folks have discovered and have been using for a while. Some of which might be like antidotes to common poisons or diseases there, or treatments for them that we're not as on maybe because they we haven't experienced those diseases, or they weren't as they haven't been a problem for us as long, or we had alternate solutions, or something like that. But yeah, there is a there is something called graywater fever that Jojen almost died from okay. when he was young, and it is possibly why he started having green dreams, like the weakness or that that whole or it's or it's connected to the same reason they but both symptoms of the same thing as we've been told a few times the a lot of times those blessed with the gifts of the old gods have weaker bodies or what have you, or, or some sort of frailties. So he may have just been more susceptible to it. So yeah, a little more chicken and the egg kind of business there. Now, compared to like Dorn and the Iron Islands, which are also really separated due to terrain, we already mentioned Dorn already, is the Red Mountains are very harsh and inhospitable, but there are people living in them and there are pockets of fertility within there, but you've got to know how to get there. It's a real home field advantage, right? Like people who know the paths. It's like, Sean, if you know a quicker way to the grocery store, that's great, right? That's useful. But, like, doesn't give you some leg up on your enemies, you know? <laughs> <It's> the, yeah. <laughs> but when you know the swamp, like, the secret passageways, the secret pass that no, that no foreigner's going to know, that's a real advantage. That's, that's a significant benefit. And, and being an a, a enemy, trying to invade a realm like that, it's got to be so intimidating. Like, just based on just what you said about training there is bad enough, but let alone having, like, enemies trying to shoot poison darts at you while you're dealing with the heat and the mos- mosquitoes and the disease. Yeah.
1: No, thank you. Yeah, it's so bad to have to turn around. You know what I mean? Have a, a, an organization going through and getting to a point where they realize we can't go any farther. So you you lost all the time you just spent and you have to spend it again just to get back to where you were. <laughs> and that's if no one's attacking you along the way. Yeah. Know? Yeah. And, they would- and someone who knows that area if they realize you've gone the wrong way, guess what's waiting for you at that point where you have to turn around some kind of ambush or at or, the point yeah. where you're going back to after you turn on and on, you're so susceptible. it's troubling and dangerous. And, uh, <laughs> yeah r- r- reason units, armies might get lost or defeated, and so on
0: and it so must be really bad for morale too, like just the, the oh yeah, the panic, the state of mind the the putting up with all that that isn't exactly help you with combat readiness,
1: right? Again, I could tell you, could years in your army, you start off just like a young private, you know, what the heck's going on. And a few years later, you're a sergeant, you're in charge of what's going on, or at least a little piece of it. And as a private, and you're just trying to do what you're told. You're trying to not get in trouble. You're trying to not be cold. You're trying to just go along with the, the machine. And then suddenly the people in charge of the machine say, "Never mind, we're turning around. You're like, <laughs> what? what? <laughs> I trusted you. I busted my butt. It's hot <laughs> out here or whatever it is. And like, uh. You you don't, you're not even fully informed of like where you're going or why in the first place, but you're turning around now. It's the most miserable, defeating. Yeah, you would have a loss of morale, the likelihood of people like fleeing or fighting less hard or making mistakes and on and on.
0: So compare also to say like the veil. The veil is fairly separated. It's got these imposing mountains and there's not that many ways through it, but they are connected to the rest of the realm unlike the neck or in ways that the neck is not. Clearly, the the there aren't a lot of like towns and markets in the neck. They don't have as much access to the world markets. Whereas the Vale, they have ports and direct access to this. Part of that is the ease of moving goods. They don't have to move goods through the mountains. They can move goods by sea. But also, they're part of the main culture. They're Andal heritage, and Andals are all more likely to deal with each other from their world. It would be these weird, creepy Kranigmen. They're not. Uh, they're not down with that as much. <laughs> so that does give them even more separation that people look down on them. So they're not as connected through markets. They're not as connected through cultural stuff. They're just not as connected. And that makes them more insular, I suppose.
1: Also, they're more likely to be self-sufficient. They don't have a big population center with division of labor. So they'll have less need for certain trade. Like once there's like a knife in the family and they just keep passing it on. They don't need to keep buying new knives. They don't have like a large city where they're like have a, an expanding growth of industry where they'll need to keep getting more supplies from the outside, right? So there's less ability to get it trade in and out and less need to get trade yeah, in. Yeah, good and point. Out. And good with said. trade also comes like sharing of stories and culture and information and everything else. And all that is not as prevalent as well. Yeah.
0: And if we think about the problem with armies, and the problem with trade goods, these things go together. It's hard to move large amounts of stuff around in, in that region. And armies are, and it's also hard to move around lots of people or to have lots of people. Like you said, they, there's a smaller population. The average Kranigman is a shorter stature. So yeah, armies are both of those things. There are lots of stuff and lots of people. So of course, that's going to be an extremely difficult thing to move around. And as we've just gone over, they often have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> just, hmm. Well, we know it's north. <laughs> And the Neck is huge. If you still have the map up or if you notice that at the time, it's really big and long. That's what she said. But maybe it wasn't always so swampy. Decent chance it's been that way for a long time because what I'm getting at is the hammer of the waters. We talked about that with the breaking of the world back with, with Elio. And we were focused more on the Stepstones and Dorne then, but certainly we mentioned that the flooding in the Neck is rumored to have been a part of that or connected to that in some way. If so, then the Neck, the first people that moved there weren't moving to a swampland. They were moving to a land that later became swampy and became less appealing, perhaps. But we're talking about a span of many thousands of years here. So nothing is going to be completely static. Uh, But this is a big difference if it was not swampland. Now, again, if you look at the map and you can see where the seas are encroaching on both sides, the sea levels rising a little bit, that would cause a lot of flooding, right? If the the polar ice caps melted just a little bit, you could see the seas rise a couple inches and that would cause all kinds of flooding, like that tipping point. And it would come both sides, so the neck would maybe shrink on both ends. All right, so let's get an in-world perspective, our first one. Sansa, way back in Game of Thrones. I think this is her first chapter.
2: They had been 12 days crossing the neck, rumbling down a crooked causeway through an endless black bog, and she had hated every moment of it. The air had been damp and clammy, the causeway so narrow, they could not even make proper camp at night. They had to stop right on the king's road. Dense thickets of half-drowned trees pressed close around them, branches dripping with curtains of pale fungus. Huge flowers bloomed in the mud and floated on pools of stagnant water. But if you were stupid enough to leave the causeway to pluck them, there were quicksands waiting to suck you down, and snakes watching from the trees, and lizard lions floating, half-submerged in the water. Like black logs with eyes and teeth.
0: Black logs with eyes and teeth. Yeah. Arya loves it though. She gets all muddy and collects a bunch of flowers. (laughs) She's yeah, this is great. Look at all the life and stuff and everything. (laughs) So yeah, very different in that regard, those sisters. Lizard lions. Let's talk about that briefly. What is a lizard lion since that anecdote ended with talking about them? It's a good time to bring them up. They are the sigil of House Reed. They're not crocodiles. At one point, they're mentioned in the same breath as crocodiles. It's like crocodiles and lizard lions in a, Sithorio, in a mention about Sothorio. So they clearly can't be the same thing. Nina points out the World of Ice and Fire says they're very large reptiles like enormous crocodiles. So they're similar. Uh, and George himself says reptile with a long whip-like tail and a long snout, similar to an alligator's. So there you go. Alligators are pretty common in the South. Mostly they just sit there. They are lazy. They're more scary than they are dangerous, but don't let your dog get near them. And they're edible. People eat gator, and I've eaten it. Tastes like chicken. I imagine House Reed does as well. I mean, actually we know they do. We've talked many times about how someone is starting to talk about something really mystical and deep, and then there's an interruption. Well, it happens in mundane times too because Bran <laughs> is bored. It's actually the reverse. Bran is bored of talking about the three-eyed crow and about the about the mysteries of the North and we're like, "No, Bran, keep talking about that." But he wants to talk about lizard lions. Tell me about lizard lions and Jojen's. Did you dream about lizard lions? no <laughs> well then we shouldn't talk about that <laughs> it's like damn it Jojen <laughs> on the other hand I do appreciate that Jojen wants to bring it back to the old mysteries and the stuff I'm like okay well either way really <laughs> as long as you're talking about something that's
1: cool they talk about writing the, the lizard lions <laughs> is that just like something it's told as a story or is that like a real thing or do we know we is that don't something it's- know
0: Yandel says, surely that's just fancy, but I mean what do you mean surely? I don't know. They got <laughs> magic in the I mean, skin changers? Like, why not skin change a, a lizard lion? Why not? Like they we've we've heard
1: about it for seals and what's so Oh, I didn't even think about the idea of skin changing, but Yeah, it seems very But like possible. crocodiles like real world crocodiles can be two thousand pounds. <laughs> yeah. And if the Kranigman, if the average maybe some eighty pound Kranigman <laughs> on a two thousand pound alligator, and if it's not a straight up alligator crocodile, like if its legs are a little higher off the ground or whatever, I don't know. I don't think it's inconceivable. I don't. It either. might be like yeah. super dangerous, or
2: I mean, I know, or irresponsible ride, or riding or mean a dragon animal, is but, dangerous too. Yeah, there you yeah. go. Yeah, we've already
0: got reptile riding in this world, so <laughs> this is just flying yeah. non flying ones. Yeah, I mean it's comes up in a lot of other fandoms like it's funny that Shay mentions dragons because that's obviously the better connection but the first thing that popped in my head was dune riding <laughs> riding a sandworm because it's so yeah. big and <laughs> you're riding it through the this crazy terrain but yeah it's all different when you're flying so yeah i mean why not it seems possible if, if you can have dire wolves and, and dragons and it really doesn't seem like a stretch uh, and the young the youngest like the kid fantasy fan in me is absolutely certain this has happened. <laughs> <laughs> like twelve-year-old diseases, yeah, definitely that happened. There were armies of them, like a whole division, <laughs> lizard lion cavalry. <laughs> they're like they're <laughs> like jet skis, but but it, like it's a jet ski where it's edible. It's like the Mongol hordes. <laughs> but, but there's even another connection here. Lizard lions appeared. In a George R. R. Martin tale, before A Song of Ice and Fire, he invented lizard lions in his Thousand Worlds universe first. They're from Tough Voyaging's story, A Beast for Norn. That's the fifth Tough Voyaging storage story. And we go into great detail on that story in the Gogossos episode, which is a bonus episode available for uh, patrons, donators, members. There's a lot of blood magic in the Gagasos episode and making of creatures and hybrid combinations and stuff like that. And that's pretty much what's going on in Tough Voyagings of Beast for Norn, along with gladiatorial games, like pitting these monsters against each other. So some of George's early ideas that we borrowed for like the fighting pits and Valyrian creepy hybrid blood magic sorcery stuff. So in addition to it being such a key point in Westeros, it's also like a reference point for discussing where regions are, where cultural shifts happen. Like, for example, Rob once says, north of the Neck, as a description of the New Kingdom's borders. And Catelyn sees that specifically as a safe zone, relatively speaking. For example, when they're fleeing back towards the north before they capture Tyrion, Catelyn tells Sir Roderick, you're my father, I'm your, da- I'm your daughter. That's who we are for now. We're incognito." And she says, we'll keep that disguise until we get to the neck, right? Because that's, okay, once we're there, that's where we're amongst friends and we don't have to worry anymore. But we don't want anyone knowing who we are until we get there. Likewise, you hear a lot of people say south of the neck, like, just as a phrase, like an idiom, like... The finest ale south of the neck. I've, that's a phrase that came up in Dunkin' Egg. It's just like a di- divisionary point. Yeah, so the, you can say the Kranigmen and the Stony Dornishmen have some things in common, being the, the, the isolated people or the free of, folk. I like the free know, folk as an example. I
2: think of like how here in the U.S. will be like anything east of the Mississippi or yeah. west of the Mississippi. Like that's exactly as much, what I was about yeah, to yeah, say. Yeah. East yeah. of the
0: Rockies. Yeah, yeah totally. You know, certain
2: ones, uh, the neck is that.
0: That is a total. yeah, it's a perfect example. I brought up the free folk. The wall is a separation. It's just an artificial barrier, but it is... Very much a barrier it doesn't really make a difference to the people on either side of it, whether it's a natural or artificial barrier in terms of the function of that barrier. It keeps them separate, whether it's natural or not, and so in isolation yeah, they have their their uniqueness because of that, so we'll see a lot in common in from structural ways, maybe not direct comparisons like obviously Dornishmen don't eat alligator, but they probably eat foods that almost no one else eat, like scorpion. <laughs> Or something like that. No one else would even want to eat that. (laughs) But yeah, we got lots of them. We don't have lots of other food. We adapted to eating these. Yeah. A delicacy, a local delicacy that most people would not find very delicate. All right, let's talk a little more about what it's like in a swamp.
2: Swamp life.
1: Swamp life is the name of this section. Here's a quote from National Geographic. Swamps exist in many kinds of climates and on every continent except Antarctica. They vary in size from isolated prairie potholes to huge coastal salt marshes. Some swamps are flooded woodlands. Some are former lakes or ponds overtaken by trees and shrubs.
0: So with that kind of variety, we're definitely not going to discuss even or even close to discuss all of the types of swamps. We'll try to hone in on the type of swamplands that the Neck seems to feature, that said, we're not entirely sure. It seems to be a lot of these different types of swamps are covered in the neck. I'm sure there's salt marshes, and I'm sure there's freshwater marshes. There's both. And there's probably some that are what's called brackish, which was when they're, when those come together, when salt water and freshwater mingle.
2: When you throw a lot of bracken bodies in there.
0: <laughs> yes, lots of <laughs> the blackwoods toss all their foes in there. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked before about how when the first men were migrating to Westeros, it made sense that a lot of the choicest lands would be taken first, but even the least desirable were taken eventually. There have been people living in the harshest places since the very ancient days, and as we alluded to, the Neck may not have been like it is now back in the ancient days before the breaking of the world. I mean, Isle of Irons are tough. The deserts of Dorne are difficult. The north is often frozen. There's plenty of other isolated pockets of desolation to be found here and there, a lot of them. Have people live in them. The general rule is if it's possible for people to live there, they will. <laughs> people will live pretty much anywhere they can manage to survive. You look at some of the places people live in the world, it's really not that strange if people live in swamps. <laughs> when you look at like not at all. <laughs> you look at like the Inuit people or desert people like that is hard living. They make it work. Yeah. People are amazing. <laughs> that said, swamps are gonna be few people's first choice. It's Lots of difficulties to the West. Like I said, there's Blazewater Bay, but I didn't say what's to the East, which is the bite. And that's kind of the, the Bay that where the sister islands sit and white Harbor feeds that area. Here's another quote uh, from when Theon is
1: there east of the road lay a bleak and barren shore and a cold salt sea to the west the swamps and bogs of the neck infested with serpents lizard lions and bog devils with their poisoned arrows
0: yeah so you get to see part of why this area at least a little bit of hint of why this area hasn't been developed it's like barren shore cold salt sea doesn't sound great let's have a few little surprising facts here
1: Yeah, one thing I want to point out that might lead into some of this is that every square inch of a swamp isn't homogenous. It's it's a general area that has a certain water level, and the Fertile Crescent, like the the birthplace of human beings, is a swamp, basically. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's flooded with water, and it it limits certain travel or, or agriculture, but it also it's flooded with water. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, good it's, water. It's, it's, yeah. A, it's a valuable resource and it's a fertile land and parts of the swamp or outskirts of the swamp are going to be very beneficial for what humans need to live or parts of the swamps will be very beneficial for humans to live for a large percent of the time. But then sometimes it gets flooded and it's not. But generally speaking, it's it makes extra sense, I think, to live in a swamp than it does to live in Antarctica or the Sahara Desert. Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, you're right, because there's that, there's a lot more di- diversity, biodiversity in the swamp than compared to these other areas. The other, the other areas are barren. They they don't have much life at all, whereas mm-hmm. the swamp is more like a jungle where it's difficult to live in because there's so much, not because there's so little. And you're totally right. Swamps, it's only within the last relatively short period of time that humans, like the humans in charge, like the large governments of the world because certainly, ancient peoples probably figured some of this out on their own. So I, I would be careful with saying first people to do something or to discover something. But a lot of modern humanity drained swamps. Like San Francisco had a huge area drained to create some really valuable land. Other areas drained swamps for this for this and that reason to create more land, or to England, or to cut lots of England. Yeah, sometimes they associated with disease and and bad stuff. So like, oh, get rid of that swamp and there'll be less disease.
1: Very fertile farmland, yeah, very valuable as farmland. Yeah.
0: You're right, because a lot of it's already watered down or, or full of nutrients or whatever. That what soil
1: has been storing nutrients for a long time that hasn't been turned into new plants and stuff, yeah. it's just been saved.
0: You There's know? fossil fuel down in there, right? Because fossil fuel is basically yeah. bio plant matter that's t- millions of years of decomposition. Of course, swamps are gonna have lots of decomposed biomaterial. so that really just stands to reason. But this, the thing humanity discovered is once you start draining swamps, you start to realize what the good side of having them was. They were focused on getting rid of those downsides. They didn't realize that getting rid of swamps created a whole bunch of new downsides. All that plant life in these swamps is a huge carbon sink. It's like a natural treatment plant. It makes water cleaner in some areas. I mean, certain parts of swamp, like you said, there can be some Fetted areas where there's like rotting plants but most of most swamps aren't like that or at least not the whole swamp and they're really good at stopping hurricanes or absorbing because they're so wet in the first place they can handle more water like a really good example of why wetlands are protected now a lot of wetlands are protected is isn't just because of the wildlife but because it protects the land around them from natural disasters one of the most famous examples of this going wrong was Hurricane Katrina, which hit, I think, around 2005 or four, around then. And it hit harder in the areas that have been drained. New Orleans, had they not drained, some of that swamp would have handled Katrina way better. And that's just a shame, right? Because it really, it, it was billions of dollars of damage and people died.
1: And a lot of times when you hear billions of dollars of damage, what that damage is, is people's homes yes. and businesses, grocery stores. Yeah. So, Here's a, a thing, a specific thing they're starting to realize is that even the process of like uh, barrier walls uh, in coastal areas meant to stop, stop waves, not just hurricanes, but just like waves in general. But they're realizing what works better than that, but especially against hurricanes, is mangrove swamps. Mm. The, the, the surface area of all the roots and leaves and branches of mangroves, they slow the water and the wind of a hurricane coming in. And yeah. once the water comes in, the mangrove trees suck up all that water so it doesn't lay stagnant drink in it the city yeah. or whatever. They, yeah. they soak up all that water. They grow more. And, and even like the base of like a, a wall where waves are constantly crashing against it, eventually the waves with that water that hits that impact, what it does is erodes the soil the, mm. the earth underneath the wall. And eventually the wall starts to fall and collapse and they have to rebuild it. It's this constant engineering problem. The mangrove trees, the roots underneath there, they just naturally grow stronger and stronger with all their, their surface area slows the waves and their roots grow naturally. It's not this constant re-engineering process that humans have to do. Nature just takes care of it. So that's like a new angle that scientists, engineering, architectural, environmental scientists are taking to treat coastal areas that are degrading and that are impacted by hurricanes is mangrove swamps.
0: Isn't that neat? Instead of building a wall or building something like completely man-made, they're like, no, just plant these trees there. Use trees. nature's yeah. already <laughs> got a solution for this. That's yeah. it's it's and that's the same sort of line of reasoning with that whole poisoning thing or the end like, well, whatever disease exists here, you might also have the the antidote for it. it might also exist in here. Like nature has its own solution. Not always you can't nature is as deadly as it is uncaring, but it's also amazing. And, yeah, and sometimes <laughs> you, respect.
2: And sometimes you find a solution, and that solution has problems of its own. Like here in Georgia, yeah, yeah. they did something similar, just yeah. in, with the kudzu, and they brought in the kudzu plant <laughs> to help with erosion. And it was like, oh wait, this is actually a very invasive species. So <laughs> mangroves are a little better than that. Yeah, mangroves <laughs> like, aren't,
0: aren't going to grow everywhere like kudzu, <laughs> and we wouldn't mind as much if they did, probably. <laughs> <laughs> So here's a, another quote from National Geographic that summarizes a lot of what we just said while adding a few more details.
2: The freshwater swamps between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in the Middle East are so rich in biodiversity that the area is called the Fertile Crescent. The abundant wildlife, agricultural opportunities, and ability for communication and trade fostered human technological development the Fertile Crescent is recognized as the birthplace of civilization and the site of the first cities. The earliest recorded written language and the first recorded use of the wheel occurred around these swamps. It's
0: weird that the first wheel would be used around a swamp where wheels are maybe less useful, but near the swamp, <laughs> not right next it. And that's what you were saying before, Sean. Most people... Don't live in swamps; they live near swamps or around them. The swamp is like right next door. Living in a swamp is a little rarer, and that's that's what makes Cranick men a little different and a little more interesting. Is they actually live in the swamps and not near them or around them?
1: That's another thing too. It's a little bit easier to understand when you think about a desert. It's just defined by the amount of rainfall per year, right? Yeah. So, much. like, it's almost this obvious example. There, are, there's an oasis in the desert. But that that oasis, it's still part of the desert. So the people living in a desert, they're not living out surrounded by 100 miles of 120 degrees bare earth. They're living by the oasis. They're living by the water source. But that's still part of the desert. Same thing to swamp. It's going to have different areas within this swampy area where some are going to be a little bit higher ground where you can build a house or maybe even a road or something. Others are going to be totally treacherous. And the people that live there know that the armies traveling through don't. I would agree with that. There are some
0: really big swamps, for example, and that's a good example of the Everglades is 97 kilometers wide, 60 miles wide, 160 long, 100 miles long. It spans Georgia and Florida. And of course, it's not identical the whole way through. Yeah, there's patches of it that are different than others. And the the climate changes as you go more north, a little bit less humid. The Okefenokee Swamp means trembling earth. And that's uh, the reason for that is the swamp, the trees are so lightly attached to the ground in the swamp that when you walk by, they shake. (laughs) So that's where the name comes from, trembling earth. I wonder if there's anything like that in the neck or if they have ways of hearing when someone is coming from farther away based on vibrations or anything like that. There's all sorts of little tricky things you could do that they would be able to leverage their environment for a benefit that, once again, people like us, we're trying to imagine and research, but there's probably things that never made it in the books or the common knowledge amongst people that would know better that that we're unable to impart. And that would be true in in Westeros. There's stuff the Kranigmen know that are both mundane and supernatural, and that's uh, that's pretty cool. Let's talk about real crannogs. Crannogs are a thing in the real world. They existed in Scotland, Wales, and a few cases in Scandinavia, but overwhelmingly they're Irish. Crannogs, most of the crannogs ever built were Irish, and they go back as far as like 3,600 BC at least. So they've been around for a while, and there are some of these crannog sites that have been basically uninterrupted use for all that time, like thousands of years, using the same crannogs. About twelve hundred of them have been found in Ireland. About three hundred in Scotland. In Scotland, there's some of them are debated whether they count or not. There's a, it's not worth getting into. The academic difference between a crannog and some of these other names are not worth getting into right now. They are man-made islands, basically, not to be confused with. Say something that like Venice, where it wasn't built on water, but it gradually became flooded and they had to adapt to that. That's different. That's something that adapted to being flooded. This is a place that they built on the flood in the first place. Basically, they take a lot of logs, they jam them deep into the earth, they put a platform on top of that, and then they put mud or stone on top of that, and it can be pretty big. Think of it like a dock house, like sticking out from a, right? Is that what you're of say, Sean? Yeah,
1: yeah. It's like a, a platform you walk along out onto the surface of the water. But usually at the end of that, most of our world experience probably, it just ends and there's a lake out there. Or maybe boats come up to it. But instead, imagine there was like, it sprawled out circularly and it was a house or whatever.
0: Yeah, or if it's a castle or something bigger. Cranig's these ancient Irish ones aren't castles, but they could be. Like you you could see, yeah. you could imagine that. That wouldn't be a crazy thing to imagine. But why? Why would they do this? What was the purpose of this? What's the point? Why Why build these? And why were they so unique, to, uh, mostly unique to Ireland or and or Scotland? Well, that isn't entirely known. Not at all. There's some evidence that they're religious, Maybe they're just just like a place to carve out an industrial area. Like we'll make some nice flat ground and and designate this for certain tasks. Defense is a really big one because you see you have a causeway, a long, narrow place. You can keep people, you protect people or stuff. It's really hard to approach that if it's just a narrow pathway.
1: I can see a lot of reasons to do it. Like it, you can be separated, but it's harder for someone to get to you. It's, it may be more convenient for fishing or even docking your boat and leaving and traveling and such. But the weird thing to me is why it only happened like in that, your Northern England, Scotland, yeah. Ireland area. Why, why aren't there more of them in Finland or France or, or even, I don't know, India and Japan and so on? It's a,
0: yeah, I don't, it's a, it is a really good question. One really neat theory I read was that it was a place... Picture that you live in a deep forest with huge trees, which a lot of ancient Ireland would be. I mean, still a lot of it is, but even back, back in the older days in 3000 BC, there would have been even more. The trees are so dense, the forest is so dense that you can't see the sky. So if you live in a forest and you want to build a structure that's in the forest, because if you're outside the forest, well, then you're not, you don't have that defense anymore. So if there's a lake inside the forest you build a structure on that lake, it's the
1: only place you can see the open sky, right? Which would be really valuable for seeing the stars, yeah. the mark calendars, maybe storms coming. And the it comes back is, to the religious stuff I, too. Yeah, yeah. I still don't know. It's not like only Ireland had big forests. You know what I mean? It still Again, seems right, like it would have yeah. happened in other places in the world.
0: Yeah. So it's really neat. Like there, it's something that archaeologists are still trying to piece together by finding tools and things inside them that can kind of attempt to build a narrative or at least get an idea of what was going on in some of these crannogs, But with so many of them used for likely different purposes, it may have just been something they figured out as a culture and you're like, hey, this is a really good idea. Let's keep doing this. And some other cultures just never, just never figured it out. Or they had other solutions for the same fundamental issues, something like that. Yeah, it's really neat. But this is where it gets different because sure, forests and swamps have some things in common. Obviously, a big thing about swamps is huge lots and lots of trees trees are really common in swamps so that's something that they have in common with forests but if you notice we weren't talking about swamps just now we're talking about forests real life crannies are mostly a feature of forests not swamps we're so that's that's where george has modified it a little bit as far as i can tell
1: one other uh Distinguishment that's worth being made here. Okay. The difference between a swamp and a marsh mm. is that swamps have trees and marshes don't. Ah there's good. similar wetlands or similarly flooded land, but they just have a different flora.
0: Okay. Right on.
1: Probably a different fauna too, but the trees are the distinguishing difference.
0: So let's put together what we just learned there and apply it to what we know about Greywater Watch, which is there's probably other castles in the neck. There are certainly other houses. We don't know the names, so Greywater Watch is a great example. Uh, there's no knights, no maesters, and no ravens because they say it moves. Now, <laughs> given the description of real-life Kranigs, there's no way that would move. <laughs> you're you're, long, you're, yeah. you're t- pushing like hundreds of logs deep into the earth, building a, building a causeway. <laughs> so that doesn't move. So this is where I think the fantasy comes into it, because George has made an alteration to the real-world version of this.
1: Yeah, I thought one one thought I had was that maybe they aren't crannogs. Maybe they're like a houseboat, but a house castle. Hmm. Maybe they do have some sort of floating device they've created with a living quarters on top of it and maybe added to it over time and that it is literally floating and not rooted. And so they have the ability to move it around. Still seems like it would be pretty limited in its movement. So yeah, like, they have to meet a relatively wide waterway. <laughs> Maybe certain times of the year when the water level rises during raining yeah, times. And I, I've also considered the thing that Shea pointed out a few episodes ago. I don't know if you remember Shea that I, I forgot if there was a name to it, but the dynamic that. From a distance at certain angles of light, something could be displaced on the water. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that's a possibility. I, I can imagine a lot of different things, but it doesn't it doesn't quite make sense. Like even the ways I think of for it moving it doesn't seem like it can move so far that people couldn't find it again. It doesn't I mean, seem like it would move like 14 miles away. Clearly, it might move Sean, like a couple football fields. But. I mean,
2: clearly the answer is in Miyazaki movies, it's Howland's Moving Castle. We, we know <laughs> oh, the course. answer. Of <laughs> course. <laughs>
1: George and Miyazaki have been in cahoots this whole time. (laughs) What other insights could we get from those movies?
0: (laughs) (laughs) So uh, Nina says the movement of Greywater Greywater watch might reinforce the old Kranigman idea that their leaders being first among equals rather than strict feudal kings A castle that constantly moves is not a great thing for hosting like regular gatherings or having a central government. Like where's city hall? I don't know. It moved. Where do I go petition the Lord? I don't know. I I know where he was last week, but (laughs) so the thing about being first among equals that Nina writes, that's a really important point. We'll come back to that. Let's, let's stick to the, some of these other points for now. One thing that's really important groundwork here. Is the lack of maesters, right? That's pointed out very distinctly, and it's it's confirmed by Mira and Jojen. I'd be like, yeah, we don't have a maester. That's also confirmed by the way. It's not just a rumor. I I, I entertain the idea that the castle moving is just a rumor. It's something that outsiders believe, but Mira straight up says it. No, there's no ravens because our castle moves. They can't find it. So it's like, okay, well, even the birds can't find it. That's unless she's flat out lying to Bran, which seems unlikely. <laughs>
1: Another thought that I had, this seems to also discount, is that maybe it's not so much a physical location as a center of control, and they change where the center control is. Okay. So like every three months, you're like, all right, now your castle's Graywater Watch. All right, now it's been three months. Now we're rotating to this one. Ah, like the location
0: but, doesn't move, but the name does. That's an interesting idea. Yeah, yeah. think about that.
1: Hmm.
0: The lack of maesters is really important here, just as a source, right? The maesters are, are supposed to be the source. This is a maester book, right? The World of Ice and Fire is written by a maester. Yet, what's his, where's his information coming from? There's no maesters at Greywater, Watch. never has been. That's a red flag, which really stands out amongst the green and gray of the swamps. This is not a well-documented place, not a well-documented people. Like the Free Folk, which again, they, there's another connection to the Free Folk. They aren't very well understood by the sources. So we have to take everything they say with a grain of swamp salt, and uh, green salt, uh, and keep that in mind. It's funny, too. Remember I uh, earlier referring to that earlier anecdote about Jason Malister being like, well, how do I find Greywater Watch? I don't know where it is. They don't know where it is. It moves. He'll go in with my banner, and they'll find you. It's funny how Jojen thinks the same way when they go beyond the wall. They're like, how are we going to find the three-eyed crow? He's like, well, maybe he'll find us. he was yeah. right, actually. Cold hands showed up. Hey, y'all, I'm here to escort you to the cave. It's going to be a bumpy ride, but I've got, a, I've got an elk. <laughs> sure enough. So let's use that as a segue to talk about the actual Kranig people, the Kranigmen. And
1: we'll start off with a quote. Last, and some might say the least, of the peoples of the North are the swamp dwellers of the Neck, known as Kranigmen, for the floating islands on which they raise their halls and hovels. Small, sly people... Some say they are small in stature because they intermarried with the children of the forest, but more likely it results from inadequate nourishment. For grains do not flourish amidst the fens and swamps and salt marshes of the neck, and the craning men subsists largely upon a diet of fish, frogs, and lizards. They are quite secretive, preferring to keep to themselves.
0: So fens and swamps and salt marshes, that's what you're saying, Sean, like those are different types of swamps, like a marsh is doesn't have trees, and that makes sense. Like the salt, that would be harder for trees to grow in. Fens and swamps. Yeah, a different types, different subgroups there.
1: Mangroves can grow in salt fine, though. Okay, probably. yeah, yeah.
0: Most trees can. not You're right. And, not, some can. Like, I think cypress can, too, but, but I'm not sure about that.
1: I think by the way, a fin and a bog, I think they're pretty much the same thing. And they are basically areas where the organic material hasn't broken down as much. Ah, uh, that's which where the means stinkiness soil goes from. isn't as fertile and that's where you get peat that can be burned or used as building material and such. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know why bogs don't haven't broken. I don't know if it hasn't happened yet or if it's a matter of the amount of water or type of water, but Yeah. So, but I think they all get mentioned in this area in the neck. I think they have marshes and swamps and bogs, and hmm, you know, all which makes sense. It's a huge area, they're gonna have all different range. What about that shade? Last, and some might say the least. Come right.
0: on, Yandel! What the hell is that, man? That's rude.
2: Well, <laughs> I guess I think there's a little bit of a play on words there, just okay, with their size, right, just because they're, they're diminu- diminutive size. Is my imp- impression is that yeah, it, maybe it is insulting, but I think it's also that. <laughs>
1: Did you say it's a little play on yeah, words? Yeah, play
2: on words. Yes.
1: <laughs> I guess if you're gonna pick on someone, the little people of small population <laughs> that are far away from you, they won't even yeah. read the book that
0: you wrote about. Yeah.
1: Them.
0: <laughs> Nina says it's a bit of a self-fulfilling statement regarding his attitude toward the Kranigman. There's no maesters there. It has little data, so they are considered mysterious. And because they're mysterious, they get looked down on as a little uncivilized and unworthy of as much attention. So yeah, it is a little cycle of belief there. But if you think about some of the things, they are quite skilled. We've seen Omira with that frog spear. She's amazing with that thing. And they maybe aren't uh, as equipped to deal with things outside the world there, but man, they're really, really big deal. Can you imagine? Like, think about this. They're the first line of defense again in the ancient North. Like when the, when the Handals were invading <laughs> the North and it was the neck that held them back, who, who, that's who they face first, right? That's who's attacking them first, the Kranigmen. So I, I feel like this denigration of the Kranigmen maybe is more of a recent thing uh, in the North if it happens at all. I'm not sure the North looks down on the Kranigmen as much as the South does because at least some of the Northerns rem- would have that ancestral memory or at least that respect would have been carried forward, especially because they still have, they, they worship the same gods, a lot of these other connections, cultural connections. I don't know. I feel like even though the Neck is its own place, it's definitely North, it's definitely part of the North, even though there's some pretty distinct differences between the proper North and the Kranigmen.
1: But... I feel like it's not far from the Riverlands. It's not. For a while, in my mind, it was the Riverlands. I had to learn, if you will, that, oh, it's the North. That's right. They went to, you know, Mira and Jojen went to see their lord. But I still, for a long time in my head, it was part of the Riverlands. So here's another
0: related quote from Bran when he meets Mira and Jojen for the first time.
1: And I think this quote's a good segue from what you were just saying about their perception. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. He tried to recall all he had been taught of the crowning men who dwelt amongst the bogs of the Neck and seldom left their wetlands. They were a poor folk, fishers and frog hunters who lived in houses of thatch and woven reeds on floating islands in the deeps of the swamp. It was said that they were a cowardly people who fought with poison weapons and preferred to hide from foes rather than face them in open battle. And yet, Helen Reed had been one of father's staunchest companions during the War of King Robert's Crown before Bram was born. So it does seem like Bran has in his mind that they're lesser. Yes, he does. But fathers seem to really respect him. So he understands that it's not adding up. And you can imagine if at least that's the base thought, subconscious thought of Bran in the North, it's got to be way worse in the rest of the land. Absolutely.
0: You know? You're totally right. And part of that is the lack of knowledge. It's like ignorance often tends towards distrust or hatred or things like that. And, yeah, it is neat because, like you said, Bran is like, hmm, but father trusted them and his father's opinion carries probably more weight than anyone's with him. And the coward, let's talk about this cowardly thing. This is really, this is really fascinating to me. You, you have a note here that's like the Dornish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's a perfect example. Like, Ober- was Oberyn Martell cowardly by facing Gregor, but not like getting up close to him? No, (laughs) I wouldn't. He was smart. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I mean, you went to battle with him. Cowardly is running away completely. And like, even for sure, if everyone knew, if he announced, all right, I'm going to fight with a poison tip spear. Everyone would be like, oh, never mind. I don't want to watch this battle. He's just a coward. What? No, He's still pretty bold for stepping in here to fight them out. To be fair, the mountains pretty fair for fighting over. and If he knows your <laughs> <spear> tip is <laughs> that's, true. Boys, uh, <laughs> that's true. maybe arrogant more so than brave, I don't know.
0: But that's just a it's an attitude of it's a cultural attitude. It's like they define bravery as face to face fighting. Where why why is that the standard? Why is meeting especially if someone's just bigger and stronger than you? Why would you meet them? that's like choosing to fight on open ground. When they have all the cavalry and the horses are better, it's like, why would you fight them when they, where they have an advantage? Fight them where you have an advantage. It may be brave to do that,
1: but it doesn't mean there aren't other ways to be brave. Right.
0: They're narrow. They have a very narrow definition. It may be brave to
1: do that, but it doesn't mean it's not also stupid. Yeah. Right? Yeah.
0: That's a great way to put it. Yeah. Because they're trying to put a monopoly on bravery by saying that only facing your opponent in the open hack and slash, that's the only version of bravery that exists. And we can sit here and go, clearly not. <laughs> clearly that's not true. Yeah. There's plenty of other forms of bravery, Not even, let alone battle courage only, because you talk about bravery outside of battle. That's something else entirely too. But even just keeping it to battle, I mean, you got to give people credit just for being there. Just getting in a fight, even if you're doing it from a distance, I mean, that takes, it still takes some courage.
1: Just even among soldiers, someone who's willing to step up and be a leader public speaking. People are scared to death, but a captain has to speak to all his, his soldiers. And that takes a certain sort of bravery, whether he's standing up to someone who's physically larger than him or not. It's still, there's all sorts of ways to be brave. And there's all sorts of ways to be smart. Mm-hmm. And it's not a good idea to <laughs> ignore those differences.
0: So on the on the light, lighter side, Brand Here's this phrase, gifts of fish and fowl and frog, and he's like, oh, am I going to have to eat frog to be polite? <laughs> I love that <laughs> moment. Might not be so bad, Bran, actually. I don't know. But since Mira and Jojen are our most direct window, it's really fun to see their attitude towards being outside of the neck. It gives us a really neat illumination of their perspective. Here's a exchange, a quote from when they're all walking in
1: the new gift.
2: Mira spun in a circle. I feel almost a giant standing high above the world.
1: There are trees in the neck that stand twice as tall as this, her brother reminded her.
2: Aye, but they have other trees around them just as high, said Mira. The world presses close in the neck, and the sky is so much smaller. Here, feel that wind, brother, and look how large the world has grown.
0: I really love parts like this where the world building is fundamental and personal to them. Mira is just exalting in just how different this part of the world is and from what she's used to and how nice it is to see this open area of just fields and some trees and some hills in the distance where it's super different from where she's used to. Obviously, Jojen isn't as impressed, but as Mira points out, there's there's so many of them so packed so close together. The perspective is different.
2: I wonder if if Jojen is a little less dazzled by things like this because he dreams. So he he sees more variety in his dreams than she ever has.
1: That's possibly true. He's also just so serious and fatalistic. (laughs) He might have literally already seen what Mira's looking at. Yeah,
2: yeah. He saw her reaction to this. Been there,
1: done that.
0: (laughs) I saw this last night. Yeah. Let's return to some of the ancient connections here as they walk closer to the wall, as they get closer to physically and metaphorically to the ancient mysteries, the magic. Well, let's come back to that note about maybe the children bred with the Kranigman. And if not, they certainly lived close to them. Here's a quote referring to that.
2: Some few children may have fled to the Neck where there was safety amidst the bogs and crannogs, But if they did, no trace of them remains.
0: Okay, now I call BS on that quote. How would you know No Trace of Them Remains? You barely know anything about the Krenigs. Mm. You don't have a maester at Great Water Watch. So this is a big assumption here. This is the same assumption that they make. Oh, they're only, they all, No Trace of Them Has Been Seen in the North either. It was like,
1: yeah. No Trace of Them Has Been Found yeah. is different than No Trace of Them Remains. They're
0: really good at being hidden. So would you really mm-hmm. know? <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's not not the best evidence presented by Yandel here. <laughs> But it's interesting. Before this line was written, and before the suggestion was made explicitly in the world of Ice and Fire, it wasn't said anywhere in the books. It's it's just a theory, and that was a theory back in the days. Westeros dot I remember seeing that for the first time and being and reading that, and, and several other board members being like, "Oh yeah, it's a really good idea. Children of the forest interbreeding with the with the Crannogmen. That makes so much sense with their small stature, their connection to the ancient mysteries." It being a place where we know the children fled to after the pact, like the deep forests and swamps, is basically that was the, the places that humanity left to them. But clearly, there was a bit of a overlap there with the swamps, right? The Kranigmen, in order to coexist with the children, must have gotten along. They couldn't have been at constant war or, or cutting down werewoods or whatever. That quote that Achea just read is referring to the Andals. This is, this, this is after the pact. This is after the children had learned to live in peace with the first men, and then there was in, trouble came again when the Andals came, this is where the children fled. So I suspect the opposite <laughs> of what <laughs> the Andals suggests here, that there are certainly some children still in the neck. And whether we'll ever see them or find a trace of them, that seems, eh, who knows. But I would still, if I had to bet on it, I would say yes. What do you think, Sean?
1: I, I wonder if, rather than the craning men having intermixed with the children, making them smaller, if there's some other shared root that makes them both smaller, mm, right? Yeah. Something about their diet or their use of magic or something else. So something that the craning men do that's the same as the children of the fourth do that makes them both be smaller for some reason.
0: Yeah, nice. Jojen makes an indirect suggestion. This is the closest we got to um, the thing before the World of Ice and Fire su- made the suggestion that maybe there is a direct connection. And this quote also tells us more about what we're trying to get at here.
1: We remember the first men and the neck and the children of the forest who were their friends, but so much is forgotten and so much we never knew.
0: Mm, love that line. That's really evocative. What is he talking about? I mean... We know what he's talking about, but what is he not saying? (laughs) What is George (laughs) implying here with this phrasing? But yeah, it just suggests even more that if anyone, if anyone culture knows about the children of the forest, it's them. More so than the free folk, I think, even though the free folk maybe have, we have more direct evidence of them living near the free folk beyond the wall.
1: Maybe some group of the Free Folk, that huge, massive okay, yeah. land and collection of, of uh, clans. Maybe one or two of those clans might know as much or more than the, the Kranic men. but That's a great point, yeah.
0: Good said, good said. Well, point. But in general, yeah, it's, other than that possibility, which is just a guess, uh, a good guess, but it isn't something we can confirm. This seems more on more on more solid ground, to use a swamp pun. <laughs> <laughs> So if you have thoughts on that, folks, share them with us. It's an open mystery. I would love to hear your ideas, and perhaps we'll shout them out in a future episode. Uh, here is our mid-roll. A few people have submitted some cool questions. Guinevere Greenstones says, The Neck is an equivalent for Tolkien's dead marshes, right? With all the knights beneath the water, tells Mira tells us about. Good call, Guinevere Greenstones. I have that quote later in the episode for the many dead knights under the water. And I did think of Lord of the Rings as well when reading that. So whether or not George meant it, it definitely registered with us the same. I imagine a lot of you all did too. And I got to think it's a reference because George, he's such a big fan of Lord of the Rings. (laughs) If he didn't do it on purpose, maybe he did it by accident. But yeah, that's that's certainly a, a good call, a good shout out. Christina K says sounds like Venice is one big cranig. it kind of became that way. Now remember the, the the distinction is built that way versus became that way. So technically it would be a little different, but it's close enough. That's a that's a, it's semantics really. It's become yeah. that, I guess. Yeah.
1: You didn't get into it earlier, but that is like a a debate among, I don't know, archaeologists or historians or whatever. Because some, quote unquote, crannies were built by piling up rocks in the water Ooh. rather than sticking down timber. And some, well, those don't count as crannies, but it's still the basic same idea.
0: Yeah. Guilty Undertaker says Venice is built on petrified wood. Huh. That's interesting.
1: Petrified wood, rocks, or timber. I don't know uh, how to count that. I <laughs> <laughs> guess it's a little of both. <laughs> it's wood on its way to becoming <laughs> stone. I kind of wanted to say limber as it's mixing up lumber and timber. <laughs> <I was> like... <laughs> it's very not limber. <laughs> <It's> very <laughs> inflexible.
0: <laughs> Christina Kay also says, natives in Mexico and other places used to build farms on what you guys are describing. Teotihuacan, aka Mexico City, used to have a giant lake and they built barges on the middle of the, with vertical logs and farmed on top of them. Good way to get easy access to fresh water. They're called chinampas. Yeah, I've seen these before. It's really neat. Yeah, these, these are... These actually float and move, unlike the crannies, which are rooted in place. So this is maybe George combining these two concepts to make something like Water Watch. He's like, well, we got bigger ones that move, and we got these small floating farms. What if we combine that idea into a big floating everything? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, great call out there, Christina. And it's, it's neat to think about that, too. Yeah, it's like, well, if we can't plant farms in the swamp, we can build floating farms on a lake. I wonder if... Uh, Any of the ancient Irish tried to do anything like that or if they didn't need to, you you wonder if this is maybe an innovation that that could have worked for them, but just didn't, they didn't have some reason they couldn't do it or didn't think of it or I don't know.
1: Or maybe that's something I was thinking this about Krennic in other parts of the world that maybe they did and just records of it have been lost. Like it might have got washed away or destroyed or submerged or something.
0: You can see why they would just be repurposed. Like a, it's a built structure that's could easily be repaired and fixed. You Just add more dirt and whatever. So if someone else comes along, they're like, "Yeah, it's a building inside the forest on a lake. Yeah, that's useful. <laughs> Build more of those." Koi Vanosy says, "I think of I think of it more like the river floodplain swamp changes around the castle, so it's hard to find again." Oh yeah, like the so that's sort of like what you were saying, Sean, with like changes to the tides, or which we definitely definitely happen swamps. I are flexible that, tuned, that way with title stuff. But,
1: but it not change it so much that people couldn't find it. Yeah. Like, maybe people couldn't find it 20 years later, maybe, well, but three weeks later, we can go back to that same Well, area. here's
0: why maybe you would be able to find it. If it's got certain paths that you have to follow, and those paths get washed out.
1: Yeah. And then yeah. you can't, like, well, where's the A path? raven can still find it, though. You're
0: right. That would not explain why a raven can't find it, because yeah. a raven would not be using paths. So very good mm-hmm. counter-argument there. Now, thinking more about Causeways, this is a really interesting thing, too. A lot of causeways now that were that lead to crannogs that still exist are partially submerged. What archaeologists don't know is whether that was intentional or not. Whether that or oh, time has flooded them or whether they intentionally did that is another line of defense. And George has borrowed this idea. Think about when Bran and Hodor and Mira and Jojen are in that tower house and they see the Fens. Remember when when they see Summer attacks and John saves John and the Thens and John runs away from a grit and all that other stuff happens. And then the next day, the Thens are trying to get to the tower house and they can't find their way across the causeway because it's underwater. And then they just give up. So the causeway like shifts. it's You have to know where it is because it's 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 designed to keep away invaders. So that's really cool. And it's it makes a lot of sense is what people are saying here. And it's good to have an example of that in Westeros. It's, just, it's a pretty fascinating line of defense there. Yeah, we've got a path, but it's flooded, and only people who are from here know the exact path. And the water's really dark, so if you try to <laughs> walk along the path, you got to need like yeah. a pole. <laughs> like, okay, whereas If the... you're a blind person, all of a sudden you're like tap tap tap. You can't see where you're going. That sounds terrifying. Whereas
1: someone that knows could o- almost run across it and notice what they're doing yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And in
0: Summer's case, he just swam. He's like, well, I don't need to. I'm a wolf. Yeah. I can swim. <laughs> So, yeah. Christina Kay also says they could get, they could be small because of the equivalent of island dwarfism. Basically, things isolated in a small place get small. That's how we ended up with Homo florensis, aka hobbits. Okay. Yeah. That is part like maybe an evolutionary thing for the Cranic people. Maybe there's a little bit of that going on here where they're smaller than quote unquote normal people, other people, because of stuff like that. And it ended up becoming semi permanent because of evolution or whatever. I'm not sure.
1: Yeah. Just a couple ancestors farther back in the family tree that were small and in this group is isolated from other parts of the DNA pool might keep on passing that small gene trait on. Yeah,
0: yeah. and a lot of evolution is selecting advantages, right? Now, evolution doesn't really play out over 8,000 years. That's not really, it's, it's just too short of a period of time. for even, even 8,000 years is too small for that. But there's not a lot of advantage to being tall in a swamp, I don't think. I mean, maybe you don't, maybe you don't sink as far. <laughs> you're like, I'm not drowning yet because I'm tall. <laughs> but also, you know, know depending on how you define good.
1: evolution, it, it it can develop more quickly than that. It. it can. It, There's uh, selection versus
0: evolution, right? Like breeding. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm. Yeah, I don't know. There's enough of the science on that to get too deep in into. But you're right. I shouldn't. I won't step out of my line of knowledge there.
1: <laughs> yeah, it like, I don't know, like, evolution might require, like, a changing of DNA. I, I probably experts to know better. But, for example, I know that there are moths who have evolved to uh, lighter color wings to match trees in oh, areas that yeah. pollution has changed the color of the bark. And so, like, the darker color ones against the bark that had changed were getting picked off by birds. So there were less of them. The lighter color ones were procreating and not getting eating as much. And in a human generation, these moths all just change colors. Mm. I don't know for sure if that's evolution, but that type of thing I don't think is too dissimilar from having a a, a small pool of short people who keep having kids in an isolated area and our kids keep being short. That's not too dissimilar, I think.
0: Carl Kosnark adds an interesting detail here. Mammals tend to get smaller on islands while reptiles tend to get larger. So evolution works differently with those species. There were pygmy elephants on the Catalina Islands and Komodo dragons are on islands to this day. And Komodo dragons are like the, one of the largest reptiles there is that still exists. But yeah, that, that's, that's interesting. I actually did not know that. I knew about the mammals getting smaller and I, I knew about the pygmy elephants. We talked about them in our When Giants Roamed episode. But I didn't know about the reptiles then getting larger. That's interesting. I wonder why. I guess they just... I don't know. That's something to look into, uh, folks. If you want to become a patron of History of Westeros or sign up as a member, you don't have to be a patron. There's other ways to to join. We got lots of bonus episodes now. Our, as I've been saying throughout 2022, our goal, one of our goals this year, is to increase the amount of patron-only content. Shea is in the process of producing our B- Brandon's Buildings, the Bra- buildings of Brandon, rather episode, companion to When Giants Roamed and Brandon the Builder, of course. And uh, we'll let y'all know when that's done, but it's going to be fairly soon. And we hope you decide to join us. Go to historyofwesteros.com. And there's a variety of links, ways to support the show, to join in, to join the discussion, uh, just to be a part in a variety of ways. A couple of other questions from y'all. Uh, More Lee sent one in advance. It says, I'm curious about the oath of fealty that Mira and Jojen swore to Bran and what the oath meant, especially when both ended the oath by swearing by ice and fire. Where did this oath originate, do you think? Well, let's have the oath first and break it down a little bit. Very good question, Mira. I mean, Maura.
2: <laughs> <laughs> God, Mora.
0: Mira. <laughs> that's a good one. Good slip of the. That's a slip of the tongue. I appreciate. I bet she had <laughs> too. Anyway, here is the oath
2: to Winterfell. We pledge the faith of grey water. They said together, hearth and heart and harvest. We yield up to you, my lord. Our swords and spears and arrows are yours to command. Grant mercy to our weak, help to our helpless, and justice to all, and we shall never fail you.
1: I swear it by earth and water, said the boy in green.
2: I swear it by bronze and iron, his sister said.
1: We swear it by ice and fire they finished together. The reason it's surprising
0: is maybe if no one had reacted to this, it would seem like, okay, that seems like a pretty standard oath. But Bran is surprised because he's been taking oaths all day. This is after Ned's been killed and the Lords of of the North are re- stating their loyalty and you know taking a knee and all that. And Bran is taking the oaths on behalf of Rob, his brother. But he's surprised because this is not how the other oaths go. And let's go with Nina's take on this one. She says, I think this oath comes from the earliest days of stark leadership in the North. It's not about political favors, titles or standing, but the most basic exchange of feudalism, fealty and loyalty in exchange for protection and justice. Nina's right. That is Basically, the core of feudalism. I mean, there's obviously it works out a lot of different ways, but that's like on paper. That's what it's supposed to be. She continues here. This is an oath in which both sides have significant responsibilities to uphold. The Reeds are looking to the Starks, not simply to be their overlords, but to provide help, mercy and justice in the immediate aftermath of the long night when Brandon, the builder emerged as the architect of the all protecting wall in the castle of Winterfell. I think this is how people saw the Starks as protectors and certainly how they positioned themselves. And, uh, and as people who would look out for them and provide for them in tough times, even before the Kranigmen formally became Winterfell's vassals, I think they might have recognized the Starks as unique protectors of the North and the land generally. Yeah, if you think about it, if you think about the North as a whole and ignore the South and what and because it's, that's used to be that used to be how it was for them. They were all kind of one world and the South was its own world. The Starks have always been focused north for most of their existence, like the wall. Their goal is winter is coming. Their their words are winter is coming. They are the reminder against that. That's what they're focused on. Meanwhile, the Kranigmen, they're too far. They're really far from the wall. They're not a, a line of defense against the others, but they are a line of defense against the south. So they're the two opposite ends of the kingdom defending against the two big ancient enemies, right? You get the north, the far north guarding against the return of the others, you get the South, the Krenigmen, guarding against the South, the Andals. That's where I I would think, though it may have fallen off in modern times, that's where some of this old respect comes from between the two groups, because they recognize each other as we're the guardians of the North, y'all are the guardians of the South. We worship the same gods, blah, blah, blah. Maybe everybody else looks down on you, but we know you guys are valuable. We know you're useful. We know you're the first line of defense. You don't Denigrate that you <laughs> you're supposed to respect the people that stand up and, and defend you and help you and and you you know fight in the trenches with even if it's the, the other end of the trenches. How does this resonate with you, Sean? It's pretty it seems like it could be pretty deep, like this connection that could last for such a long time.
1: Yeah, there's also like interesting details to it. I don't know how to say. Oh, when you think about like the specifics of what these words mean, part of part of what I'm thinking about is the idea of the the Toli. When I realized the idea of the Toli house words are family duty honor yeah it's not just that it's family duty honor that it's family first mm-hmm. then duty honor is last your, <laughs> your personal pride is not as important as your family or the duty to your lord the duty to your lord is not as important as your responsibility to your family so hearth and heart and harvest that means our home if you need your soldiers can come live on our lands
0: mm-hmm.
1: our heart like our personal soul our belief our passion will be behind you our harvest our food we'll send you our food as tax relief or whatever. And our sword and spears and arrows, like we'll send soldiers to the armies when you call for it, we are your bannermen. And I'm sure a lot of these are similar to what the rest of the oaths were, but but it is, I think, interesting to break down what this means specifically. And maybe most importantly, that there is a sort of a contract to it, that it's not automatic. Mm -hmm. Grant mercy to our weak, help to our helpless, and justice to all, and we shall never fail you. But, if you're not granting mercy to the weak, if you're not helping to help us, hey, then we're not then we might fail you. like,
0: mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, and that is the, the basically the core philosophy of feudalism. It's like you we both hold up our end of the bargain, and uh, everybody wins. A big part of why the War of Roberts Rebellion broke out was that Ares was pretty blatantly breaking the feudal contract <laughs> like you can always sort of yeah. argue oh well there were circumstances and that but i mean he's just executing people left and right there's no argument there oh, the king can do what he wants well then so can we <laughs> Well, then we're <laughs> gonna stop yeah uh you're pushed a little too hard there Ares. Mm. yeah so again i i really want to emphasize that i think the kranigman we hear so much about how they're viewed by people in the south and even in the North now, they probably aren't viewed the way they used to be because these them being the first line of defense that's just so far gone in the past. Most people won't even remember that. And the North is, the North may remember, Yet it's actually not that strong on history. <laughs> like, individual people, you know what I mean? Like, individuals don't know history very well, but the trees remember. It's more of a literal, <laughs> like, the land literally remembers. <laughs> but that doesn't mean it's strong with its, its, like, historical details. Nina also adds another great point here. She says, I think the ways in which the reeds swear reflect the balance of man and nature that they have remembered, but much of the rest of Westeros has forgotten. Earth and water might be said to have belonged to the children, while bronze and iron were the tools of the first men. But these are not in opposition. The Krennic men remembered their friendship with the children even as the children disappeared from the rest of Westeros. Two, as Mira and Jojen later point out, ice and fire are not impossible opposites. Quote, if ice can burn, then love and hate can mate. Mountain or marsh, it makes no matter. The land is one. Great take there, Nina. Well, point. Good said. I totally agree. It's a very good theory, a good idea of delving into which aspects of this oath reflect which parts of their history. Or which things matter to them. It's a good way to break it down. More asked another question here. What do you think will be the Cranigman's role in the war with the others? Well, I, I think we're seeing it. I think that what happened was Ned never saw Howland Reed again that we know of, which is peculiar maybe, but I wonder about that. We'll come back to that point. But as soon as Jojen had his dreams about the Black Sea washing over Winterville, which ended up being a dream about Ironborn, and Bran being in chains, he had the uh, crow chipping away at his chains. and Reed was like, "Oh, I'm sending you to Winterfell," and it's, but he also needed to re- to renew their vows. But this was the the dreams were a big part of that. So this is the most direct of any house is playing or fighting the others here. Bran is on a beeline to the north. He's learning about the others. He's learning all these ancient mysteries and the Reeds are the ones more as much or more so than anyone else that took him there and part of the reason is that Hal that and Reed sent them to do this. So I'd say that their, their role is to protect and guide the Stark who is fighting this ancient evil. So it's like the what we've been describing, the ancient relationship between Kranigman and, and Northerner is being played out here. The Kranigman, even though they're the small cowards that I'm not, obviously, I'm putting coward in air quotes. They're not really cowards, but everyone else sees them that way. They're the ones protecting the Stark and Winterfell in this most important, crucial mission. When it all comes down to it, the rest of the South can't be bothered or they don't even know what's going on. But the ones who have been keeping the, keeping the faith and keeping their eye on what matters most, it's pretty neat the way it's all Circling again, and they're all kids, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really, man, George, you're good at this. <laughs> just getting, I'm just uh, starting to get flustered with how cool it is. You know, <laughs>
1: <laughs> how long between John going to the wall and Helen sending Mira and Jojen to Winterfell? Okay, so how, how much time would have been in between her?
0: Uh, maybe a year at most. Okay, so John goes to the wall right away, right? Like, in his like his second chapter basically, and. About, I think, less than a year passes before the end of the book. And it's like right away, the beginning of the next book, first chapter, Clash of Kings, you're starting to get uh, lords coming in to do homage. And because at the end of Game of Thrones, Rob is declared king, right? The second to last chapter before Danny's dragons are hatched. So the beginning of the book is, immediately deals with what's next. Okay, Rob is king now, word has reached Winterfell and here come the people to, to bend the knee. So I
1: think it's... So it would have taken some time to send word to the reeds and then for Mira and Jojen to travel up to Winterfell. It would have taken some time for John to get up to the wall. Yeah, it's, like It's a while to
0: get there. Yeah, to the wall, you're right. That's not a...
1: It's probably not, but I'm wondering if if Howland was aware, if Jojen was aware that John had left already, if there's if some part of their mm. interpretation of the vision or prophecy might have been they thought that John was oh. the one that Jojen was supposed to guide or seek or whatever. But that's an interesting already idea. gone. Hmm. I guess we'll go with Bran. Well you know?
0: we know they know something was up, maybe not on the mystical side, but but Ned had already sent orders to Catelyn to say, hey, send scouts into the neck and tell them to get ready. Hmm. So they knew something was going on. They may not have they didn't it was looked like more of a military action than ended up going in this mystical direction also, but still, anyway. Mara also wants to know if they'll play a role and who ends up on the Iron Throne. Well If Bran is king at the end, then the Reeds will have (laughs) definitely played a role in that. (laughs) But there's still some reason to be skeptical that Bran will be king at the end of the books. I think there's a strong chance. The show obviously gave us that. But we shouldn't be 100% sure that's how it's going to go down. And it may not even be an Iron Throne. Nina always reminds me of that strong possibility that there won't be one. Which, if there is no Iron Throne, then... Then they of course won't play a role in who ends up on it. <laughs> no one will have. They'll they may play a role in ending it. They may be part of that. So yeah.
1: it's also possible that there is an iron throne, but it's not what it used to be, that the seven kingdoms aren't united anymore. Good he point. might be a, just the lord of, of uh King's Landing and not much more or something.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, Nina, that I think that's what Nina envisions like different states. You mean, know, a different new kingdom. They may not, be she, she didn't use the word kingdoms. They could be kingdoms, but she used the word state in case they aren't kingdoms, in case there's some sort of yeah. new type of government. So I thought it was wise to use a more open-ended phrase there. Okay, let's talk some more history on the neck. Let's take a look back into ancient times. And here's a quote.
2: Long ago, the histories claim, the Kranigmen were ruled by the Marsh kings singers tell of them riding on lizard lions and using great frog spears like lances. But that is clearly fancy. Were these marsh kings even truly kings as we understand it? Archmaster Iron writes that the Cranigmen saw their kings as the first among equals, who were often thought to be touched by the old gods, a fact that was said to show itself in eyes of strange hues, or even in speaking with animals as the children are said to have done.
0: Well, this quote has a lot to react to in it, doesn't it? First of all, this whole, that is clearly fancy. Now, we've talked about this riding lizard lions already, but we take great offense to clearly fancy. (laughs) I mean, he even says, speaking with animals as the children are said to have done. Skin changing. We already covered how that is a very strong framework for this to have happened. (laughs) Uh, were there were there even marsh kings as we understand it that's a really good question too okay first of all this bit about eyes and skin changing about eyes of strange hues that has been expressed elsewhere we've seen it blood raven has red eyes Jojen has green eyes bran doesn't so that's he's an exception but clearly there's a lot of evidence for this that the strange hued eyes are 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 an evidence of being touched by the old gods does this imply that they tended towards people with old gods' powers as their leaders? It says that they often chose these so-called kings or first among equals based on such things, which is really interesting because no one else does that. How, for What I mean by that is in the north, beyond the wall, the free folk aren't put off by the old gods' powers, but it doesn't have anything to do with choosing leadership. It seems like something they accept. It's like a fact of life. Some people have these powers. Some people are skin changers. But we don't see any strong evidence that skin changers have some sort of leg up on taking charge unless they use brutality like Varamir did, right? Like they just are, they use violence and fear to rule, which anyone can do that if they have the means. It isn't just a fact of being a skin changer or not. So there isn't some sort of, oh, he's a skin changer, We revere him more. But it sounds like that's what's happening in the neck. And so, again, that's neat because nowhere else is it like that. Even in the North where they are protecting against the return of the others. That's not something that the Starks seem to value or to look for. Sure, there's maybe evidence that there's connections there with the direwolves and all that. But it isn't like something they looked for or something that they seem to celebrate. Or if they did, it's been forgotten. So this is a really unusual difference. I really find it quite fascinating. Yeah, I wonder if Alan Reed has any sort of... this he's touched at all by that. Maybe he has his own green dreams. I tend to think not... I tend to think he just... Rea- he understands them. He had reacted to his own son having them. But you never know. Maybe how did he... What did he do with the Tower of Joy? We'll come back to that at the end of the episode. But yeah, maybe he used some power there. What do you think about all this, Sean?
1: Another question... Mira and Jojen wouldn't have even been born when Helen Reed was at the Tower of Joy. Is that accurate?
0: A Jojen would not have been. If Mira was, she would have been like one or two years old. So, yeah, probably. I think she might have been born like right after the war. I think so. Yeah, I think I think right after the war. Because I think she's 16 and the war was like 17 years ago. So, I'm, yeah. I, I think she And it is. would
1: make yeah. sense. He would come home and. Yeah. Have a kid. A thought I have had—it's uh, they could still hold true. I started wondering for this episode if there's something that Helen could have told Ned, whether it's a prophecy that he himself had, or a dream, or a vision, or that someone else had that Helen just believed. Especially if Helen saw pieces of it coming true mm. that he told Ned that might have steered some of Ned's decisions or mindsets or whatever. Like maybe it's not just that Liana asked Ned to keep it to keep John a secret. But maybe Halland also did. Maybe Halland said, look, this kid is gonna be some kind of savior, or this kid's gonna save us from the others, or or maybe there's some other layer of knowledge that Ned had or had been told maybe by Halland about where the future was going, that added to his belief that he needed to keep John's mm. identity a secret. Yeah. It still seems like he could have told Caitlin, I think. Yeah. But <laughs> but I can't help but wonder, it, it's especially if we do accept or learn that Helen straight up is a green seer and he has all kinds of visions, just like Bran or then or even Brendan Rivers or something. But he doesn't necessarily fully understand the visions, but he's trying to, and he shared some of this with that. And he might have done this at the Tower of Joy. Or before the Tower of Joy, that mm. Helen's been experiencing this yeah. his whole life, yeah. or even since. If he, I don't know if Ned and Helen have interacted, even if they hadn't physically talked, he still might have sent him letters. I, I, I just need to think about what decisions Ned might have made based on things that Helen told him. We've seen all kinds of other characters make huge life decisions based on some prophecy or some vision, sometimes for better or worse. Ned might have also, and we just aren't aware of it. Yeah,
0: we've said it before. I'll say it again. There's probably no character that Knows more about more mysteries <laughs> that we have <laughs> wanting that we're wanting to know about than him. Obviously, there's characters who have powers like Brand that have even more potential to unlock mysteries. But as far as things they like, they personally experienced, <laughs> he's he's right up there, maybe number one. So it sounds like they view things a little differently. Nina points out maybe it's because in their case, a green seer slash skin changer might actually be really vital to their community survival or or enhances it in some way, whereas in the north a skin change chieftain what would that would that how would that benefit the community? You know what I mean what would that do for you? It might have some value in the neck that that although I can't think of an example of what <laughs> it's something maybe I just can't think of uh, maybe having more knowledge of how the weather is going to change or things like that, like the water levels rising, like more understanding of what's happening nature wise which that may be a magic thing. It may be not like directly a Greensier thing. It may be one of those magic things that isn't really magic. It's just it's just secret knowledge. Like how Euron was thought to be controlling the weather because of how he was sailing, but really it's just advanced seamanship, something like that. Where is it magic, and where is it just like swamp people know some things that people outside the swamp don't know? You know, and <laughs> maybe it's a little of both. You know, probably both, but. I don't know where that line is. You know,
1: another thought along this line of like how power, social power and mystical powers might be connected or not connected. Some people might have an extra respect for it. If you can see the future... Talk to the animals; they might feel like you're a chosen one. But some people might be suspicious of it. Mm -hmm. If you become corrupt, we can't give you too much power. You're already you already have some kind of power, or maybe you're chosen by the devil. You know, (laughs) maybe maybe (laughs) some dark lord is giving these powers. And you're, I mean, we burned witches. That's what the
0: the faith the the faith worshippers would almost certainly view it that way. As yeah, this is an abomination. That's how they look at dragons and incest and yeah. And so I think that is part of it that the Kranigmen still have that healthy respect for these powers, whereas a lot of the rest of the world has evolved to be suspicious of it or to just treat it as somewhat neutral. And Nina points out when I when I made the examples about the Free Folk, like Tormund said he's fond of wargs, which yeah, that's positive. But he's not like, oh, I'm I worshiped them, I revere them like this. That's not well, it's them. well short of that, right? It's definitely a positive. And and Ygritte's like. We're not frightened by by wargs because Rattleshirt's like ah he's a warg and R- R- Grit's like so and everybody else is like yeah so and he's like all right that argument's not going to work. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> it is interesting though that you do see even in the north we've talked many times there's different clans with different cultures and opinions they don't all the same yeah that's uh, true there, maybe one of those clans somewhere would make a green seer be their chieftain but it, on average it doesn't seem like they particularly single them out negatively or positively.
0: So here's another quote from Jojen that shows more their closeness of the Kranic men to these, to the old gods and the respect they have for it. This is pretty deep into their journey.
1: The secrets of the old gods, said Jojen Reed, food and fire and rest had helped restore him after the ordeals of their journey. But he seems sadder now, sullen with a weary, haunted look about his eyes. Truth, the first men knew, forgotten now in Winterfell, but we and the wet wild We live closer to the green in our bogs and crannies, and we remember. Earth and water, soil and stone, oak and elms and willows, they were here before us all and will still remain when we are gone.
0: Yeah, it's a really, like, reverence for nature and just understanding of how small humans are compared to the grand forces of nature beyond. And that he's saying that so many people have forgotten that, but his people haven't. Of all the people in all of Westeros, they may have the best claim to this proximity, to this closeness, to these memories, to this, to these truths, to these concepts. Not even the free folk have this, I don't think. And it's neat to see you hear the phrase old gods of the north as an example of how the Krennic men and the Neck are left out and forgotten. He says old gods of the north and Neck. Like, he's like, don't forget about us. <laughs> in fact, we're just as prominent in our worship of them than anyone. And this is just a, just a good, really good world building, really good writing by George there to just emphasize how the rest of the world sees them and how they get forgotten and left out. And just, it it works its way into the very language and the the common phrases that people use. I find that to be just really one of the things, the types of things that George does that makes the world feel so authentic among so many other examples. Another example of what I was just saying regarding the mixture of magic and nature and knowledge. At one point, Mira says about their father. He says he knew the magic of the Kranigs, which is that the Euron seamanship thing again, or is that just is it both? I think it's maybe both, but it's it's more of the Kranigmen sort of like keeping up their their marketing. <laughs> you know. It's, we know stuff. Don't forget that we know stuff. You don't know what it is, but we know stuff. Like just to give themselves pump themselves up a little
1: bit. But there's but but it's not a lie. It's just vague. <laughs> There's different ways that could be interpreted too. He knows of the magic of the Kranogs or he knows how to do the magic of the Kranogs. Oh, good, you know? co- good point. Yeah,
0: like he understands it, but he doesn't mean doesn't mean he can use it. He just recognizes it or understands it. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, mad the difference between magic and and wielding magic. Okay, so here's another quote about the way the North coalesced into what it is today, and kind of the order of things and and how it all came together.
2: After the defeat of the Boltons, the last of their northern rivals, the greatest threats to the dominion of House Stark came by sea. The northern boundary of the Stark domains was protected by the wall and the men of the Night's Watch, whilst to the south, the only way through the swamps of the Neck passed below the ruined towers and sinking walls of the great fortress called Moat Caelan. Even when the Marsh Kings held the moat, their cranigmen stood staunch against any invaders from the south, allying with the Barrow Kings, Red Kings, and Kings of Winter, as need be, to turn back any Southern lord who sought to attack the North. And once King Rickard Stark added the neck to his domain, Moat Caelan proved even more imposing a bulwark against the powers of the South. Few sought to push past it, and the histories say that none ever succeeded.
0: We know the last Red King bent the knee, quote, a thousand years ago, which is our usual code for an uncertain but long time ago. But if this is even remotely accurate the neck fell after the rest of the North. It was the last piece added, the last piece of the kingdom that became there. And this Rickard Stark that's mentioned here is the Laughing Wolf. He was son of King John Stark, and John, John Stark is the one who built the first castle at White Harbor. So this is like a, a very rapid period of Stark expansion it seems like, an undefined period in history that maybe one day we'll zoom in more on.
2: You know, I think he might have formed the first comedy club. <laughs> the, the Laughing North. Wolf. Yeah, the Laughing Wolf.
0: <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, once he did that, that's, <laughs> he built it at that first castle at White Harbor.
2: He's
0: <laughs> like, thanks for building that, Dad. I'm going to install a comedy club. <laughs> so, yeah, so Rickard slew the last Marsh King. Since he married the daughter and killed the father... I don't think it was House Reed. It was some other house, maybe, but it could have been House Reed. Usually for the house to continue, they have to bend the knee, though. It sounds like this guy didn't bend the knee. The Marsh King didn't bend the knee. He was killed. And how, And then Rickard married his daughter and House Reed was appointed afterwards. But it's possible that House Reed was related to this, whoever these Marsh Kings were. Whoever, whatever happened, though, House Reed has been the overlord ever since then. So that's, it's quite a long time. For example, of an example of someone bending the knee And being able to stay, stick around is like the Boltons. I mean, the Boltons were horrible enemies for a long time, and kind of still are. But they were allowed to continue because they surrendered. It doesn't sound like the the Neck did. It sounds like their stubbornness extended to conquest by the Starks back in in these days, whenever this was, a thousand years ago. But it's very easy to understand, from a strategic perspective, why King Rickard wanted the Neck. Even though it maybe doesn't have a lot of resources or soldiers... It's like controlling access to the entire region. If the Marsh King is on your side, okay, you're good. He's going to protect them. But what if he's not? He's like, yeah, let the armies go through. He lets some Andal army through and gets, takes a bribe. Or what happens with Balon Greyjoy, right? He seizes the neck and locks, uh, and locks the army out. He's like, ha! I trapped your army in the south. What are you going to do now, Robb Stark? And yeah, so it's just a, it's a really vulnerable. You don't want to control the spot that controls you. You don't want someone else controlling the spot that has such control over you. So from a strategic perspective, yeah, if you don't have the defense, it's like you have the castle, but someone else controls the moat. <laughs> you know, it's, hmm, that's not good. <laughs> so you really, really easy to see that it may not be. I wouldn't say that's a justification to conquer your neighbor, <laughs> but from a Thinking like a king, okay, you can get it.
1: It's an understanding of why someone would do it, even if it isn't justified.
0: Right, yeah, always important to make that clarification. You can under, you can see why, it doesn't mean you agree with the, the ethics of it. Nina says, notably, the Marsh Kings always seemed to have a sense of northern identity, even before they were part of a unified northern state. Far from allying with southern invaders to try and conquer into the rest of the north, the Marsh Kings, allied with various northern kings to repel any non-northern host, I wonder if this again gets to the idea of a sort of pre-fealty to Winterfell present in the neck even before the formal surrender to King Rickard. Even if the Kranigman families didn't want to be vassals of the Winterfell, they may have recognized that the Starks have been leaders in the Long Night and that the way the world is going, that it's no longer a time of hundreds of kingdoms, it's a time of larger kingdoms and the smaller ones will get picked on. You got to join someone, you got to be part of a bigger group. That happens in the real world quite a lot. When big coalitions of militaries form and they all join groups, You oftentimes it's not a good idea to be left on the outside of that. You want to be part of the, the protective group. But there's also got to be cultural connection. There's also got to be religious connection and worship, all that. Uh, why would the Neck want to be an Andal- Andalized kingdom when they have much, much greater connection to the people in the North? So that you can see a lot of reasons why they would want to do this. Although I don't know I'm curious to imagine, think about and to hear from y'all and, and Sean and Shea as well, perhaps, what which one of these things they value the most. So I wonder if it's, I tend to head towards the the worship of the old gods. That thing I think is maybe the most important of all, but I don't know. What, do you guys have a different impression or?
2: Frog similar? eating.
0: Frog eating. No, they would steal all the frogs
1: away. <laughs> <laughs> There'd be no more frogs. Think of the frogs. Yeah. yeah, worshiping of the old gods is something that makes, it's something that you just get indoctrinated to When you're a kid, you grow up with it your whole life, and it's in the real world, we see that being uh, important enough for people to die over, to go to war over, and so on. So Yeah, knowing nothing else
0: about two sides in a war, if you hear about two sides fighting and one of them matches your religion and the other one doesn't, most people throughout history will side with the one that matches their religion. I mean, maybe it's a bit cynical to say that, but it's probably true. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like most people won't just be like, oh, I don't know. I'm staying out of it. I mean, they really will stay out of it. Probably just having an opinion is just staying out of it. But if they're going to take a part at all, it would be on the side that shares their beliefs. Most of the time. Certainly not always. Of course, besides the swamp itself is Moat Kalin. Let's come back to that. What Kind of what it looks like now or in more recent history. Uh, The first men learn better. Of course, back in super ancient times, there were many invasions of first men kingdoms trying to go north that didn't work out so well. And when the Andals came, they had to learn
1: that lesson all over again. Quote. The number of Andal armies that were destroyed in the neck cannot be easily reckoned. So the king of winter preserved their independent rule for many centuries to come.
0: Mocantle used to have 20 towers. There's that quote said several times, never taken from the south. Ned once said, 200 determined archers can hold the neck against an army, and it looks like he was underselling it. <laughs> when Theon <laughs> lured those ironborn out, the ones that were holding Roose Bolton's army off, there were only 63 of them, <laughs> and they were underfed and undersupplied, and he was like, dang. And Theon was almost proud of his people then, even though his own identity was so... And they weren't like 63
1: master archers. They were like sailors, right? Yeah, one of them
0: only had one arm. He wasn't shooting a bow. Yeah, so imagine then. It's 63 archers held off Roose Bolton's army when there's a causeway. Imagine before there was a causeway and there were 20 towers instead of three. (laughs) Imagine that. No way.
1: This maybe could be used to argue the other side, but... But not necessarily. Anyway, uh, I'm trying to say, I wonder if they're used to being 20 towers, if that's a sign that it wasn't always a swamp. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder if it's an indication that it used to be 20 towers. Where'd those 20 towers go? Did they get submerged in some sort of cataclysmic event? Some of them collapsed, yeah.
0: Some of them, like one of them still leaning really far over, like the Leaning Tower of Pisa and that...
1: Like, Did they build 20 towers in the middle of this swamp or did it not used to be a swamp? It's a good
0: question. Yeah. Why would you, and th- and it's not, doesn't seem like swamp constructed, it's basalt, b- huge basalt blocks. It doesn't really seem like hmm, yeah. ideal. And maybe the, yeah. And located the swamp could have encroached into it. Like it maybe was on the tip of the swamp. And over time, the swamp has moved yeah. up a little bit,
1: but you're As right. As you mentioned, maybe if polar caps were melting, that that spot may have been in a general swampy area. But over time, or due to some cataclysmic event, got totally overtaken into swamp. And that might have led to the destruction of the 20 Towers or 17 that used to be there or whatever. But. There also
0: used to be a big wooden keep. And that's just gone now. It just rotted away, fell apart. And...
1: That would have been washed away in some sort of tsunami. Yeah, you know?
0: absolutely. So here's another quote that refers to some things we were talking about before. This goes back to Guinevere Greenstone's question regarding the people sinking in the bog.
1: <laughs> there are no knights in the neck said Jojen.
2: Above the water, his sister corrected. The bogs are full of dead ones, though.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, good
0: quote. Good said, Mira. And Victorian, too, he's thinking about, he has these memories of how bad it was and how much he hated the bog devils and how he wants to get revenge on them. I doubt he's going to have that chance. And I also don't think it would go the way he wants if he if he actually tries. But he is... An example of this, it didn't go, <laughs> there's so many of his men were shot by poison arrows or he was sniped when oh, they went out for a pee or something like that, or just succumbed to the, the environment with without the help of the Kranigman. And there's probably so much like armor and weapons just down there. <laughs> Can you imagine? Like how dumb is that to go into a swamp in armor? I mean, yeah, it's like going into the Desert in armor is kind of the same way. It's like we saw, you ever seen that movie Kingdom of Heaven where they marched the army out into the desert and these guys are like, what the hell are you doing, man? This is such <laughs> a bad idea. We're all in like armor and it's like 120
1: degrees. Baking themselves, yeah. Yeah, it's like it's massive. Flip side, Stan has brought his army to the north. They yeah. weren't really properly attired for that. That's true, that's true. That could have been disastrous if they didn't happen to have a quick victory. You <laughs> know what I mean? Yeah,
0: yeah. In the Neck, we haven't seen much of it, but we've seen Moat Kalen several times. It's neat that we've seen that. Uh, a few other places we've at least heard about through indirect memory, or do we just know someone's been there? For example, Balon orders Victorian to sail up the Fever River, because the headwaters are only 20 miles from Moat Kalen. So they, they, they sailed up the, the headwaters there, dropped their boats, marched 20 miles, took Moat Kalen, No one saw it coming. This, your your idea to have people watching Mo Kalin would have prevented this, Sean. See, eh, eh? Good call, Sean's Sean's the military strategist here, mm-hmm. and it worked really well. Balin's plan, hit, the rest of Balin's plan wasn't very good, but that early part, pretty smart, pretty clever, worked out pretty well. The rest, not so much. This is also something that Curry has memories of, and later this backfired because the when the Nor started to throw off some of this, it was Riswell and Dustin men that snuck up behind and attacked those ships. The ones that were parked there and a lot of some ironborne ships were destroyed. And that's part of why those men at Mokalan were completely left high and dry or high and wet, I suppose. <laughs> Tall, yeah, it's very humid there and they're in towers. So, yes, high and wet, not dry. The, the Fever River, by the way, real quick, is a reference to George's novel Fever Dream, which takes place on the Mississippi in the 1800s. It's a uh, sort of Old South <laughs> vampire novel and it's awesome. It's really good. It's not like your typical vampire novel, but it is got that Louisiana vampire feel that that predates the vampire, uh, the the interview interview with with the vampire. vampire. Yeah. Yeah. Which is also Louisiana. So that's cool. Cool. Check that out. Maybe one day we'll cover Fever Dream. It's really, really good. I think the folks over at Nauticast covered it and I'm sure they did a fantastic job with it. Let's talk about some things in current times. Like who's around now, what the rest thinks of them, like what, what cultural views of the the neck and Moat Kalen and and the Kranigman is like. This one's from Theon. A lot of names of current houses and another fantastic description of a place that I love hearing descriptions of, as creepy and weird as it is.
1: The only dry road through the neck was the causeway and the towers of Moat Kalen plugged its northern end like a cork in a bottle. The road was narrow, the ruins so positioned that any enemy coming up from the south must pass beneath and between them. To assault any of the three towers, an attacker must expose his back to arrows from the other two, whilst climbing damp stone walls festooned with streamers of slimy white ghost skin. The swampy ground beyond the causeway was impassable, an endless morass of suckholes, quicksands, and glistening green swords that looked solid to the unwary eye but turned to water the instant you trotted upon them. The whole of it infested with venomous serpents and poisonous flowers and monstrous lizard lions with teeth-like daggers, just as dangerous were its people seldom seen, but always lurking. The swamp dwellers, the frog eaters, the mudmen. Finn and Reed, Pete and Boggs, Cray and Quag, Greenwood and Blackmire. Those are the sorts of names they gave themselves. The ironborn called them Bog Devils.
0: <laughs> yeah, those are cool names. They're very telling, right? They're very like, like a lot of first men names. They're very to the point of what they're associated with.
2: Right? You think any of those bogs we're named Wade
0: <laughs> Wade Boggs, and they waited in the box. <laughs> yeah, George. It is two G's. You're right. Yeah, it's not o g s and that is how Wade Boggs is spelled. And George R. R. Martin knows baseball. Yeah, it might be a reference to Wade Boggs. It's a good call. Why are you the one noticing the baseball reference, and not me? Not <laughs> because me. Because always sunny fan. in
2: Philadelphia. Yeah, that's because it's always <laughs> sunny. Gang beats Boggs. <laughs>
0: That's the great uniter. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. (laughs) It's always sunny in the neck. It's always swampy in (laughs) the Kranigs. Yeah, so all the different nicknames they have, frog eaters, mud men, swamp dwellers, bog devils, all these nicknames are all pretty derogatory or at least not friendly. You wouldn't call them that to their face and expect a positive reaction. House Reed, of, like I said, is the overlord. And since the time of the fall of the Marsh Kings, those other houses mentioned there Blackmire, Boggs, Cray, Green Good, Pete, Quag. We don't know anything about those houses other than they're Cranigman houses. There's no detail on them specifically. I like that house, Green Good. Sean, you said Greenwood by accident, but it's Green Good. I just like that. It's like Green. Oh, so very simple. Like, talk about a simple, straightforward name Green Good.
2: Firebag Blackmire
0: Blackmire So now You might think What about House Marsh Bowen Marsh The administrator The Lord Steward Of the Night's Watch Maybe soon to be removed From his position Thanks for Thanks to assassinating The Lord Commander You're not supposed to do that They're not mentioned here But like House Marsh is in the north. Aren't they probably in the neck? I mean, this marsh, right? I mean, we don't know, but I would,
2: you got to guess. Yeah, right. I would guess too. You guess neck just, house, yeah. right. <laughs> right.
0: So, you know, uh, well, that's head headcanon. It's not confirmed, but I'm, I'm headcanoning that one. I imagine a lot of you all as well. The one house out of all those that actually has a mention is House Fen. Nina says the Fens will likely be important in the She Wolves of Winterfell or whatever the actual final title of that is called because Willa Fenn, was historically the mother of Lonel Snow, who was a bastard of Lord Brandon Stark, who was the youngest son of Cregan, meaning Cregan, the old man in the North, the guy from The Dance of the Dragons. And Brandon is the father of Baron. Like, and what,
2: who's that guy from The Dance of the Dragon? The guy? The Stark guy. The guy, okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so between being a crannog woman like Howland and being her name being Willa, like the wet nurse from Starfall who nursed Jon... So this is uh maybe a little Nina suggests, maybe this is a little back-end paralleling to Willa and Jon Snow there. You've got the the bastard angle, you got the Willa angle, you got the Kranigman angle. Mm, yeah, you know how we all know how George likes to do that. His uh precursor versions of stories to the main version. Yep, I, I like that there. I did not notice that. Good catch by Nina. Okay. Here's another quote using a phrase that we've Referred to in this episode as something that's worth noting.
2: South of the Neck, the river folk whose lands join their own say that the Cranig men breathe water, have webbed hands and feet like frogs, and use poisons on their frog spears and their arrows. That last, it must be said, is true enough. Many a merchant has brought rare herbs and plants with many queer properties to the citadel, for the maesters seek such things out to better understand their properties and their value. But of the rest, there is no truth to it. Kranigmen are men, albeit smaller than most, even if they live in a fashion unique in the Seven Kingdoms.
0: Okay, so again, we have an opportunity for misunderstandings to seem like magic, like any a technology or a method that seems sufficiently advanced or misunderstood, it's going to seem like magic. I think there's a lot of that going on here. However, again, we have the caveat of there is magic in this world. We also know of other people that have webbed hands, maybe not feet like frogs, but the sister men have them. Mark, we see it. It's not just a rumor. Lord Godric Burrell has the webbed hands, the part, part webbing there, and, and he says it sometimes happens on feet too. So that's maybe supposed to be some sort of ancient connection to the Deep Ones or something like that. I don't know that that's going on here, but the point is it's not something that we've never seen elsewhere. It is a distinct example of possibility. Breathing mud, to me, that's like that tricky thing where you get a reed and you, you use it like a snorkel. And I think that's maybe what they A
2: read. A read, yeah. house <laughs> I,
0: is, yeah, I think that's highly likely. Yeah. Right on. So yeah, I'm glad you thought of that too, because it's it seems like we've that's something we've seen and like you see like, like in like
2: you see it in cartoons. Movies a lot. and cartoons <laughs> yeah. Where, yeah.
0: <laughs> but I guess it's not unrealistic. At least maybe some of the ways it's portrayed is unrealistic. But I think in general it's possible. Well, like
2: as a concept, it, like we have snorkels. We yeah. use snorkels. That is a thing that exists that we've created to to improve that concept.
0: Yeah. <laughs> It makes sense that these things could be misunderstood. We, we certainly know what the poisons, that's 100% true. We've seen it. It's accurate. The frog spears, that's true. The merchants rare, with rare herbs and plants bringing to the signal, that's really interesting. You wonder what kind, of, what kind of trade happens there. It's probably too small of a scale. It's another thing where if they could like plant farms full of nightshade or some of these rare herbs, they could make a killing. But you can only, they probably can only find them in certain spots, and you can't do this on a large scale. So I don't know, but still, it's interesting to think about. This is where medical science advances, <laughs> where you you find these plants. The citadel takes them and figures them out. Maybe the chronic men are like, "Hey, we already used that for this." And it's shown effective. Like this, that happens in the real world. There's things there's natural remedies people are using now that aren't fully understood, but definitely have some such overwhelmingly strong anecdotal evidence. They must must be something to it. It's just science hasn't gotten around to figuring that out yet, or narrowing it down a bit more. Really cool. More. Excellent merging of real world with fantasy here in a way that I, I like a lot. Early on, uh, we mentioned the phrase being perhaps the most denigrating of the Kranigmen, living in proximity to them, disliking them. Here is one of the Walders, I forget which one, one of the Walder phrases, the young ones, the squires, and <laughs> saying what they say. It's pretty easy to see how this isn't um, accurate, <laughs> but it's fun.
1: Real quick, just a minor thought that popped in my head sure. about what you're saying a second ago. I think there's a lot of research into snake venoms and maybe spider venoms uh, in general yeah, yeah. because understanding how those neurotoxins affect our brains helps us understand how our brains work and it might be useful to fight Alzheimer's and things like that. I don't know if the Citadel is that advanced. But. <laughs> One day, maybe. Not if, unless
0: your own destroys it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Frog eaters don't smell like men, Fran insisted. They have a boggy stink like frogs and trees and scummy water. Moss grows under their arms in place of hair, and they can live with nothing to eat but mud and breathe swamp water. What? <laughs> well, let breathe swamp
0: water. We just discussed how that might be. I don't think they're eating mud, and I really don't think they have moss in place of hair. Now, come on, Walder.
1: <laughs> What's that all about? <laughs> you can imagine that maybe they eat peat in dire times, and that gets witnessed one time and translated to they eat mud, you know? Yeah. <laughs>
0: Regarding the rare herbs and flowers from a minute ago, earlier we talked about how Aria much earlier we talked about how Aria really enjoyed the trip through the Neck while Sansa didn't. And here's what she said.
2: When we were crossing the Neck, I counted 36 flowers I never saw before, and Micah showed me a lizard lion. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> that's awesome. Love that. Yeah. So that's kind of two alternate takes there. We got the Walder, like, denigrating them, and she's not talking about
1: actual Krennican, but she likes the area, and... You can imagine Walter's negative take. You can imagine like a young kid, Bran or Arya, or someone like, whoa, really? Like he's <laughs> meaning to insult them, but they might be inspired and want to be like that. Like yeah. when my dad was a kid, you know what he wanted to be when he grew up? Want to be a garbage man. Because he got to ride on the outside of the truck. It <laughs> was such a cool idea to <laughs> <laughs> So there's that saying
0: in Westeros about, and this is this relates to the like Westeros' version of courage and what defines courage and how it's very narrow. There's that saying that poison is a woman's weapon. This is denigrating that choice because it's not standing tall and fighting face to face. That doesn't meet their definition of bravery. They, call, they also think it's like Pysel once, I think calls it a eunuch's weapon. It'll call it a Dornishman's weapon, which we've seen that. But really, who uses poison more than the Kranigman? It really should be a Kranigman's weapon. <laughs> so that's for, <laughs> that's for women and Kranigman, which we wouldn't see that as an insult, but it would be more accurate because <laughs> who uses more poison than them? No, I, I mean, I don't think the Dornishman use more poison. The only poison that we see Dornishman use is Oberon, And he went to the Citadel to learn how to do that, <laughs> at least some of it. I mean, he also learned from like milking vipers, which he may have learned that from someone else. But still... These, It's like, hey, we should be known for this. <laughs> you guys you guys always forget about us. <laughs> and remember how it, it it just wreaks havoc on the ironborn. I, earlier I mentioned how Victarion's like, yeah, I wear my armor when I sleep because you never know when you're going to get sniped. And Roose Bolton, remember how cautious he was? He had a decoy. He had someone else wear his clothes when he was passing through the neck. He's like, no, nah, I'm not getting any chances here. Those those men. So he, it's another example of the South may talk loosely about them and, and denigrate them, but the North, they're like, do not take them lightly. Do not make the mistake. Do not show them a patch of bare skin. They'll hit it with poison. And that's that. You do not want that to happen. Oof, yeah. So I really I, I like that a lot, how wherever you go in the realm, you get a variety of different takes about them. You can go into, like, Spear. people are like, the Kranigmen? Yeah, aren't those, like, the, the swamp people? Like, I don't who are they again? Well, I don't know anything about them. They're so far away. You know. <laughs> and you go to like Volantis and they probably won't even have heard of them. Like, who? i never heard of that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but mm, I don't know. All right. As our last section today, let's review the open mysteries and ongoing plots that are related to the Neck and the Kranigman. We're not going to delve deep with any of them. A lot of these are big topics on their own, but we want to acknowledge them, kind of do a rundown and, and kind of, Peak our interest and, and remind ourselves of what's going on and what's related to this.
2: You're really you're ambitious enough to do a rundown.
0: <laughs> the rundown. <laughs> what's a rundown? What's a rundown? <laughs> the fact it's interesting, like in a meta perspective, the swamp it's, it's a good place to hide things. The neck is a place where things are hidden. Things have stayed hidden and mysterious, and George has kept things from us about it. Like he, it's a mysterious place that he's added extra mystery to, but stuff is coming, like winter. Especially Stark stuff. Almost everything that, that we're going to about to talk about is either Stark related or directly Stark. Obviously, with the Krannigman mixed in. Obviously, Helen Reed, biggest of all, Tower of Joy. What are we going to learn about that? Did he use some magic? To beat Arthur Dane, or is it something more mundane? Mundane? Ooh, I didn't mean for that pun. Poison? Yeah, it could be poison. It could be, yeah. Both of those things are strong possibilities. Just to, also the other details about Ned, Lyanna, and Rhaegar. Like, why did, yeah, why did he never come to visit? Maybe Ned and Halen trusted each other, it seems like. But maybe there was some love lost or too much shared trauma. Because it is odd that they were so close. But Bren has that thought about he never, he's never met a Kranigman. So it's not like... War has been raging. Seems like Howlin could have come visit if he wanted to. So it's a little odd that he never did, right? Uh, it's a little peculiar. If they were that close, maybe they're just too many bad memories of, of how things ended. So something to think about there. In addition to just other supernatural knowledge that we can't perceive directly. I mean, he understood the dreams. He Jojen and Mira both alluded to how his their father knows things about the magic of the Kranigs. So... Well, you know what? What does that entail? But it's not just Ned. It's not just this aspect. It's not just Ned, Lyanna, and the Isle of Faces and and Rhaegar. It's Lady Stoneheart. One of her hideouts is in the neck. Makes sense for outlaws to hide up there. It's a good hiding place, and she personally might be unbothered by a swamp because she's undead. Maybe, maybe it's worth. Maybe she's like rotting more. I don't know. (laughs) It's gross to think about. (laughs) But at one point, Blackwalder, who is one of the More formidable phrase is trying to track her with hunting dogs and a a party of soldiers and they lose trail of her near again Meyer, which is again Meyer like sits on the borderland between the Riverlands and the neck. It's ruled by House Nayland, which is sworn to House Frey. So it is a place of it is a, a Frey territory. But again, sits directly on the border with the next. So I,
2: I just want to say that the name Nayland, I just want to emphasize it's Nayland, as in <laughs> this is not land. This is what we rule, not land a swamp. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: Anyways.
0: <laughs> no horses either. <laughs> oh, no. Nayland.
2: Can't well, that sounds like, here. It sounds like <laughs> where there are horses, Nayland. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It should be where they
0: are. You're right. So this is Hagsmire is also the birthplace of Chet famous leecher, murderer, and a, song of, or a Storm of Swords prologue character, you might be surprised how often Hagsmeyer comes up and how, what important things happen there. Because not only is Lady Stoneheart running through there back and forth, not only do we have all this stuff with uh, possibly the reeds, but Rob's army of 3,500 is even there overnight once, and it's there where they hear about Balan's death. And sign Rob's will. That all happens at Hags <laughs> And where they come up with the plan to attack Mo Kalen. He's like, okay, great John, you're gonna go f- up the front. Mouse are you gonna come around the back? The guys are gonna attack from the north. We're gonna hit it at three sides at once. They got this whole plan. And then, of course, they go to the red wedding and plans are off. But he sent Lady Mage and Galbart Glover into the neck with his will. With the fake will. <laughs> they know the real will. The words written are fake. We don't know where they are. That was in Storm of Swords. We still haven't seen them yet. Mage's heir, Lady Mage's heir, that's Mage Mormont. Her heir was Daisy. Daisy killed at the Red Wedding. Galbart Glover's heir is Robot Glover. Robert Glover's the one working with Wyman, Manderly and Davos to do the, the the Skagos run and to keep things under wraps from the phrase, right? That's super interesting and a plot that's, really just in limbo right now what's going on with those people in the neck what's going on with rob's will what's going on with all that business and on top of that coming back to ned ned's bones were sent north with a small guard and lady dustin's i'm watching for those bones i got guards at the top of the neck waiting for that those bones are not going to winterfell they're going to me i'm feeding them to my dogs <laughs> he's a real jerk <laughs> about this but apparently that hasn't happened yet. Like in a dance with dragons, she's talking to Theon beneath the crypts of Winterfell. Like, yeah, that hasn't happened yet. Like I've got people waiting for it. It's just a lot of time has passed. And remember who was sent with those bones to, to lead them back north? Our old friend, Captain Obvious. Actual Captain Obvious. <laughs> so we wonder where he is, too. Where's Captain Obvious? Come on, where is Hal Malin?
2: <laughs> I really wish you would just call him them, them Bones. Them Bones?
1: Yeah, yeah, I do love Alice in Chains. I
2: I just, every time you say those ones, I'm like, Them Bones. Like, them
1: <laughs> I bones. feel so alone. <gasps> going to be... <laughs> gonna end your, up a big how does the geography bones. line up? Is it possible that Lady Stoneheart has or could intercept Ned's bones herself? I don't
0: think so, because those bones were sent north pretty early on in, I think, A Clash of Kings. And she obviously doesn't die till the end of the next book. It's possible. It's possible they're all just hanging out with Howland Reed. Like, Howland's like, all right, everybody chill here. I've got everybody. I've got the bones. I've got the will. I've got, got Captain <laughs> Obvious. i got Mage and, and Galbart. He's king of all the unresolved plot lines. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's Chekhov's gun. <laughs> Howland Chekhov. Chekhov, Reed. And all of this said, all of these these open plot lines pretty much guarantees we'll have a nice opportunity to come back to this topic one day to cover the things that have yet to be revealed when they are revealed, as well as probably some other things that we maybe didn't think of or other little subtopics here and there. And that's our main episode for today. Any any uh, final comments, Sean, before we get to our outro business here? Well,
2: I, I have a comment. I love Juice. And I'm wondering... All my, I get all these cran juices, cran apple, cran watermelon. Are those are those cranigman juices? Do cran cran yeah.
0: juice, cranberry. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Because that cranig's a... cran, cranberries do grow in swamps, I think. Yeah.
2: Do you think they got they got? Anyways, mm-hmm. my point is that are they swimming in juice <laughs> in the neck?
0: <laughs> yeah. That's a new flavor from Ocean Spray: cran swamp.
2: Yeah,
0: cran swamp, go, cran <laughs> bog, yeah, cran
2: frog, <laughs>
0: cranfen, yeah. yeah, swampberry. Yeah. Sean. That's your job for next week. <laughs> have some sort of swamp drink.
1: Yeah, have a swamp I drink I am not a us. cranberry fan. Oh, it's bitter. Oh, it's so good. I love hard. cranberry. Yeah,
2: we do. Some of those mixes my, yeah, I have had, some of those my, ocean Spray mixes yeah. are good. My favorite right now is the, sure. is the cran watermelon. If you haven't had cran watermelon mm-hmm. yet, Sean, you got to try it. Otherwise, when you're here. My plan still for Ice and Fire Con is to get at the grocery store, Sean, like a bunch of drinks for you. The beard bar. And I, yeah, the beard <laughs> bar. I, I really want to set it up. People are going to come up and they're going to think think they're getting an alcoholic drink and it will not be alcoholic.
1: (laughs) Suckers, they're going to be getting nutrients (laughs) bit of intoxication. (laughs) Is this making me healthy? Get it out of me. Okay, the
0: trivia question was, there are three remaining towers at Moat Kalen: the Gatehouse Tower, the Children's Tower, and the Drunkard's Tower. When their army passes through prior to the Battles of... The Green Fork and the Battle of Whispering Wood. Yeah, Rob takes the Gatehouse Tower, the biggest one. The other two towers were taken by Great John Umber, the Children's Tower, and the Drunkard's Tower was taken by Rickard Karstark. All right, if you got those, give yourself a pat on the back. If not, next time perhaps you'll do better. We'll continue with the once a week questions, and I hope you enjoy them. And also want to shout out the episodes we mentioned in this one. I don't know that we mentioned any of our other episodes besides the Gagasos blood magic episode. I also casually mentioned the Brandon's Buildings episode as well, which is not technically out yet, but soon. Keep an eye out for those or sign up to be a patron or send a donation. And you can get the links to those directly. History of Westeros.com, pardon me, is the uh, is the link to go to our website and check all that out. Is also on our website is... Ashaya's excellent search tool that she built for us allows you to search for any chapter Valar Reredis and uh, takes you to the episode that it corresponds with. So whenever we refer to old chapters or or different things in these later Valar Reredis, we try to make it easier for you to go re-listen to the. Uh, yes. original Val Arboretus for the main series.
2: Yeah, it's a good, yeah, definitely good to remind people of that, that the yeah, website no does have a pretty good search functionality because we do tag things. If you're looking for every time we mention brand of the builder, you could look that up and often find a lot of mentions of it. It's not as cohesive as I'd like to be, but it's, it's good.
0: Yeah. yeah, and if you all have any suggestions for us on our website or, or benefits we offer to patrons, we're always all ears. In addition to, of course, we're always interested in questions you have about the source material, the topics uh, each week. And I also want to remind folks that we started taking votes on Patreon for what the next episode will be for Val Arbarita, since the topics are open ended now. We've got a lot of directions we could go. Folks overwhelmingly voted for Kranigman this week. Last week, y'all voted for Free Folk. And we'll see what's going to be next week. So I, I'm not telling you in advance because I don't know yet. The, the poll goes up usually Monday and we'll usually announce the topic by Tuesday or Wednesday after people have had time to vote on it. So that's how that's going to go for the near future. And, of course, we're still doing scripted episodes in between that. But the future is bright for History of Westeros podcast, and we're glad you're with us. If you came to watch live, extra thanks for that. We appreciate people who hang out in the chat. It gives us all a little more fun, makes the whole thing uh, a little more robust.
1: John? Sean? anyone still listening i want to direct them to my one minute movie review yes of all the, oh uh,
2: yeah of course
1: all the academy award nominations this year and i've done a bunch of other women movie reviews too but Dancy sean on uh follow me on twitter if you want at dancing sean and my youtube channel is dancing sean
0: yep Dancy sean oh, yeah, S-E-A-N. Never
1: got a cat. sean gets cat a lot yeah uh, uh,
0: thanks as well to nina make sure to check out good queen alley with one l dot com. tumblr is p-u-m-b-l-r of course Thanks, of course, as always, to our patrons. You are the reason we are here. I don't know how infrequent episodes would be if it weren't for y'all, but you are the, the gas in our engine. Thanks as well to Joey, Jesse, and Kevin for the music. Thanks to our ben for the benjineering. Thanks to Michael Clarfeld for the maps and the video intro. Thanks to our mods for running things over at our social media groups where you can interact with other Westorians about a variety of topics, not just Westeros stuff. We've got talking about the expanse, talking about baseball, talking about pretty much any tv show that people are interested in. That's the great Books, thing about discord. So we did The you can Expanse there, yeah.
2: yeah. Oh, that's not one exciting thing I can bring up. We are going to do this. We I originally wanted to start it in December and it just didn't work out. But in June we're going to start a little wild cards read. Oh, yeah, wild cards. On Discord, yeah. we'll probably read at least the first one, maybe two. So we'll do wild cards starting in June. So uh, if you want to be a wild with us, yeehaw. Then join Discord.
0: Yeah, and this is a read for a lot of people, not a reread. For yeah, some people, I've never read any of it. Yeah,
2: yeah. For some people, will; it will be a reread, but for most of us, it'll be a read. So that'll be cool. Yeah. Yeah. All right.
0: <laughs> oh, <laughs> your face. Ice and Fire Con. That's right. We do hope yeah. to see a lot of y'all there. It's in a few weeks. I imagine yeah. those of you going have already decided one way or another, but we'll be reporting on it as well.
2: And I if I, if it, if I can sway any of you in one way, I will say that we are going to be dressed up as green men. <laughs> Aziz and Sean and I and some other folks as well. There's a group of us. And so if you are going to be at Ice and Fire Con and... By some chance, you want to be a green man with us? Well, the Zentai suits cost thirty dollars on Amazon, and you can message me about it. I doubt anyone will hop on. But I really love the idea of like ten of us showing up in these suits. Join the green men. Yeah, we got. We We want to have more green
1: men than phrase.
2: That's the main goal. There were a (laughs) lot of
0: phrase last time. There There were were so many. So we need to yes, couple times. Green men need to stand up against the phrase. The Cranigmans versus the phrase. We'll be replaying something right out of. Westeros history <laughs> alright everybody thanks again have a great week and we'll see you next time for more Re Rereadus <laughs>